Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Stronghold Podcast. We have an excellent guest on the podcast today, Mr. Robert Deagle, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu brown belt under John Danaher, and uh, coach now in Singapore. What's up, Robert? How you doing, man? Hey, pretty good. How are things, man? Like, uh, I rolled with Robert, I don't know, when was it, dude? Like, six months ago? Uh, longer than that. It was last January. Yeah. Oh, it's been ages, man. Time's flying by in the corona days. I can't even keep <laughs> track of it. But I rolled with you then, and your skills were ridiculous you leg locked me like three or four times you took my back trapped my arm in like a second and started strangling me and i'm like what the fuck is going on dude and uh so you've got this at this point you've trained with a lot of people here in singapore and uh everybody that that's rolled with you just talks really really highly of your game you can tell that you're super dedicated and uh really happy to have you on the podcast man thank you i, I appreciate it so I can tell that you're super de- oh, put that right up there, dude. no you're good bro so i can tell that you're super dedicated man you're always sharing like I can tell that you are like very intrinsically motivated to, to train. Like you seem like it's a puzzle worth solving. You share a lot of videos on, on Instagram and YouTube and I always, I always save them. Cause then I go, especially your transitions, the way that you transition from move to move. Cause like, you know, when I'm learning some of the leg locks and stuff, I was never taught them. I'm learning them independently and it's always like move by move. But then I see the way that you switch between like the 50, 50 and the cross ashy and the X guard reverse sex, all your transitions, stepping out to the back. And you do a lot of like flow drills, I would say. Is that true? I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, so the trick is, is like, I think of leg locks. So a recent thought that I've been having is I think leg locks are actually a lot like wrestling. So that might sound like strange, but like, so think of like traditional jiu-jitsu is usually taught as kind of like this, you're looking for stable control positions, right? Which is, that is ultimately our goal. But the trick is, is that it, I think it's actually very hard with leg locks. Stable control positions, like you have to think of leg locking in steps, right? You, you know, you have to entangle the leg, expose the heel, then you apply the break, right? And each of those specific steps has different things you have to do, like sub steps within those steps, right? it's very difficult to accomplish each of those steps with the same entanglement. So then I think naturally what happens is transitions become a very big part of that. So for instance, like when you look at high level wrestlers, there's very rarely static control grips they're going to make on each other mm-hmm. that they're going to hold for lengthy periods of time. Because just like with leg locks, they constantly need to reconfigure themselves in new ways to accomplish new tasks. So with leg locks, like, it's really hard to stay in just one position and get everything done. You can at a lower level, but when you start to get to a higher level, it becomes very, very difficult. And I think that um, I think that it has just begun to be explored at length. I, I don't think we're anywhere near to being done to figuring everything out. Um, I think that the evolution is, you know, we've gotten pretty far, but we're not, it's not done. I mean, it's the most rapidly evolving subset of skills in jiu-jitsu, I would say. I mean, even... Even like looking at Lachlan Giles' most recent run at ADCC, all of his like his outside Senkaku, backside 50-50, all that, like I've never seen all of that stuff in the way that he was doing it. And now everybody's got that into their leg lock transitions. And it yeah. seems like every six months or every year, there's a new setup, there's a new position, there's a new, like and it's, it's really fascinating watching the explosion of, of leg locking in jiu-jitsu. So you would say that uh, leg locking specifically is less static than like traditional jiu-jitsu where you like you pass the guard you lock it down mm-hmm. you get the mount you take the back i mean would you say it's more fluid than like the old school traditional style i think so i mean there's still transitional fluidity to that right especially at a high level sure. it's, it's pretty hard at, 
talk, hold people in static. Just mount someone and hold them right. Yeah, yeah, especially at a high level. The higher level you get, the less static control positions there are. But I think with leg locks, there's even like less. So, like, so for instance, like if you want to, if your only goal is to statically control somebody with leg locks, it's pretty easy to do actually. Like if you get cross Ashi and you just hold the secondary, like it's yeah. not. It's not that hard. Yeah. <laughs> you can That's the one I think of the most. Because really, you got to control both legs, so you can really just ride it out. Yeah. It's pretty easy, right? Or the same thing with diagonal ashi. It's not a hard thing to do. You What's can, diagonal ashi? Uh, it's, your legs are reaped to the inside, and you have their secondary leg control. Oh, okay. So, yeah, it's like cross ashi with the leg rather than on the inside. It's on the outside. Right. Okay. Yeah. So that's... Also, it's an inside positioning based variation of Ashigurami, so it's very easy to control people for lengthy periods of time. But then when it comes to actually time to submit people... It's pretty hard to do for different reasons. Cross Ashi, trying to expose somebody's heel is like, it's not impossible, but it's very hard. And typically to get it done, you need to have a size advantage or they just need to not know how to defend, right? If either of those is true, yeah, okay, maybe it's possible, right? Um, but to me, that's not that's not what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for something like, well, I hope I'm bigger than this guy. <laughs> yeah, you're looking for something repeatable on anybody, right? Yes. Regardless of skill level. Yeah, exactly. Your submission rate is ridiculous. I saw an article, I don't know, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I saw, I think you shared it, mm. but it was some like global ranking under Black Belt Noki. Were you like number one? Oh, <laughs> grappling industries. <laughs> oh, the grappling industries, huh? Yeah. But still, dude, like, man, the fact that you're a brown belt and you just, I think when I rolled with you, you're a purple belt, you're fucking everybody mm. up. I was like, okay, maybe I'm like, I'm way behind in these in these aspects of it. And I, I thought even when we rolled, which is funny because this is what really opened my eyes, right? Like, obviously, I already knew you're you're way better leg locker than me, right? I mean, you spent time under Danaher in the blue basement, and, shit, and those guys are tip of the spear, right? But I thought maybe if I could get you in certain positions, it would be whatever. Then you fucking like took my back, choked me out, like you got me with traditional shit too, and I'm just like, and I'm bigger than you. I mean, not by much. We're kind of the same size, but. But I felt like if I got you in certain positions, and then you played that game with me as well, and you still fucked me up, so I was just like, damn, man, you, your whole skill set is very good, and I can tell that it's technical because I never felt like you were muscling me either. Like, you know, when you grab somebody, right? You can tell if it's fluid and they're catching you or if they're forcing shit. Right. I never felt like you were forcing anything. You were catching me in flow mm. constantly, and that's just superior positioning superior micro movements and micro adjustments and right. you know it was just fucking awesome exactly. <laughs> i was just like damn yeah yeah i mean i'm not pretty i'm really not that big so it's hard for me to like muscle people i've never <laughs> been able to do that like and even if i'm rolling with somebody like so one of my best training partners back in new york was this girl named cheryl she's a very small girl uh under 100 pounds i don't, I don't know what that is in kg yet i'm learning it but i don't yeah. <laughs> i don't have it mastered yet but anyway so small right uh and like I could have just like cavemaned her every round, you know, but like the, who's going to get anything out of that? I'm not getting yeah. anything. She's not getting anything. She's actually an amazing leg locker. So, and like what happens with a lot of guys is they'll roll with her. She heel hooks them. They get pissed off. What do they do? They she's fucking goon them. Yeah, them right. exactly. Yeah. So she, she's told me about experiences with her where she's done that. She's heel hooked like a blue belt and the blue belt went ballistic. <laughs> it's like, oh man, that makes for a not good training session. But when I rolled with her, first of all, like, I remember the first time I rolled with her, I was like, I want to keep rolling with this girl because it's super hard to heel hook her. Like, it was like, it's so hard. Her feet are really tiny and she has good defense. So I was like, if I can heel hook this girl, I know I can heel hook most guys. If you can heel her technically without yeah. forcing it, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the question is like, what would anyone get out of training? What does anyone get out of training if they're just like cavemanning stuff? You know what I mean? Like, I had a, all the time I have to tell students, like, 
gotta relax. Yeah. Gotta calm down. Like this is not a war. It's not. It's not even about winning. Like I literally don't care. Like I. I have a student of mine here who I'm consistently letting take my back and put me in strangles because I want to work, practice working my way out. And he obviously gets it sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm letting him get pretty deep. Cause, but it's like you have to do that. So, yeah, that's, that's something that – so uh, it, very, it was very heavily ingrained to us in the blue basement that you have to train. Like people make the mistake sometimes of associating very hard training with good training, yeah, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. And they, yeah. they think to themselves, you know, if I'm going to war every round, that's the best way to optimize my skill development to succeed in competition, right? When in reality, I mean, that can definitely work. There's people who do that, you know? But the, the trouble with that is, is like, first of all, you're mostly just sharpening what you're already sharp at, right? Yeah. You're not going to add new areas to your game. And, and second of all, that essentially is if you get better it's almost on accident because you're not deliberately planning out what you need to work on right there's no intention to the training you're just always using your a game always using your best moves you're not because you have to be willing to experiment and a lot of times if you're rolling with somebody who's around your level and you can't beat them with anything but your a game and it's stunting your growth as a as a player right as well because you feel like you can only do that particular thing where the reality is like if you play your B, your C, your D game or you experiment with new moves, you might get your back taken. You might get, you know what I mean? You might get caught with something. But that is still, I always say jujitsu is win-win. If you yeah. lose, you win. If you win, you win, right? Like mm-hmm. if I fuck up and someone's on my back, like, okay, now I'm back defense, mm-hmm. right? It's like there's really no lose-lose scenario. Even yeah. if you make a mistake, you get to work on some other stuff, right? Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. It's just, you know, like... I think what happens is instructors get self-conscious about it and they don't want to be in those situations because then they're worried if they get tapped, they look bad to their students. Yeah, totally. And then that permeates throughout the culture of the gym and it creates this environment where people are people are battling it out and trying to win. And then you consider like how much more that problem is exacerbated when you're in situations where it's a competition school. Mm-hmm. You have a, a competition coach, he's usually a competitor himself. He doesn't want to lose because he doesn't want to look bad. Yeah, I just think it's not a, it's not a, it's not good. But I came up always seeing Gary Tonin. Gary Tonin talks about how often he gets tapped in training, and he's not kidding because he's constantly putting himself. Like he would let me get heel hooks on him, and then try to get out. And like most of the time, he wouldn't get out. Yeah. That's because he's putting himself in super deep heel hooks. But yeah. he would still get out sometimes. And not, like if you can get his out, defense is legendary. Yeah, I mean his submission defense is legendary. Mm-hmm. Well, that's how he got it. You know what I mean? Like he yeah. let himself get put into these terrible situations super consistently, and so as a result, you know he gained this proficiency in in defense. And like, so I saw that all the time. And that's a good example to follow because it's like, look, he has no ego about tapping. Like Gary, has, <laughs> if you ask people that have trained there, he taps very loudly. Like he'll yell, tap, tap, tap. <laughs> like, so it's like everybody. Announcing it to everybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Everybody, like literally when Gary gets tapped, everybody in the whole room knows it, you know? So it's like, because he's, he's, you know, he does it verbally. I think the, it's probably the safest way to make sure that. Sure. Yeah, everything stops, right? Um, so like, yeah, when you have that example I've tried to follow that where it's like you need to be you know I remember a role one time that I had with a uh, a training partner of mine named Damian Anderson and he's a really good student under Gary and and Danaher and we're rolling and it was a very neutral round we had a few exchanges but I was playing a very defensive game because I didn't want to get I didn't want to get tapped out he had a few good attacks and I was trying to avoid those. And after the round, he got like really mad at me. <laughs> Unnecessarily mad at me. Because you weren't opening up? Because I wasn't opening up. Yeah, he's actually, so he's actually a good friend of mine. So it wasn't like, it wasn't like 
anything weird, like that kind of an anger, but it was just anger. Like he was pissed off. Cause was, I remember he said to me, like, he, as soon as he ran out, he was like, fuck Rob. He's like, you got to get better at defense. And I was like, he's like, you didn't get me. And he goes, yeah, because you were avoiding the situations. Yeah. You know, and I think that he could have said it a little bit better, but, but I do understand his but point. You understood what he meant, right? Yeah. Like I completely understood what he meant and I've, I've taken that a lot to heart. And, um, um, I think it's, I think it's super, super important. So. I also I also think it it really stunts your growth if you don't do that. I mean, I can give you an example. My wife is less than 100 pounds. I mean, she's 50 kilos, right? So about-ish 100 pounds. Mm-hmm. And she always wants to go with all the, the bigger people and all the good people. And then I, I really only had this realization maybe like two months ago or something like that because she's going to compete for a spot on the national team here in Singapore. She's one of my purple belts, the three-stripe purple. And I've been training her full-time for like six years, right? And uh, I realized that she her defense is good in the sense that it's very difficult to tap her out, but her submissions aren't there, her sweeps yeah. aren't there, all these aspects of her game aren't super developed because she's at such a size disadvantage. But she's technical enough that people have to resort to strength yeah. if they want to compete with her. And if the ego is involved, then she just never gets to hit her offense. She's constantly shelling. Maybe she'll scramble, she'll take the back, but then they're pulling and they're way bigger than her. So when she's trying to hit the choke or something like that, mm-hmm. it's so hard for her to punch it in or armbar people that are literally like 20, 30% bigger than her on average. That doesn't even include the people that are way bigger than her, right? And it just so happens that a lot of the more experienced people in our gym tend to be a little bit larger. Mm-hmm. But I realized how much it stunted her growth over the years that because her technical level is higher than everyone else's, for them to feel like they're competitive with her, they're forced to overcompensate in order to have any success. And they can't bring the ego down enough to let her work. And in their mind, they're fighting harder. But the reality is, is like, listen, if she takes your back and you can't defend without doing all these chokes or you can't like balance out so hard and break, fucking explode full power out of like a mountain when she's, it's like, it's just not helpful to either of you because you're not doing a technical escape. And she's never getting to drill her offense because she's constantly under fire by these people that are way bigger than her. She's not getting to hit her reps, you know what I mean, for her submissions in transition because as soon as she'll catch an armbar on a bigger guy, they'll literally fucking just pick her up, right? right? She's so small. And then I've realized like how much of a hindrance that is to her overall development. Yeah. You know, and like the only thing that I say now is like you try to teach that, but you know, you get those young kids, hey, they just, it takes you experience and time to learn when to cool it down when you're overcompensating when you're not there's no ego involved in shouldn't be in tapping out it's just part of the process like you need that we've tapped more than i tell this to my students all the time i've taught tap more than all of you guys combined right i mean it's just part of the process and if you can't like if you're a purple belt or a brown belt and you can't give a white belt or a blue belt your back without worrying about it, then it's really on you. Like mm-hmm. you need to work that skill set then. Like right. drill your escapes and even give them stuff. Let them you know, stick the arm out periodically just to see. Let them take it. Yeah. And get into that last line of defense and see if you can get out because that to the student that you're rolling with, right? Like if I'm rolling with a blue belt or white belt and I'm de- deliberately sticking my arm out when they mount me to see if they'll take the arm and then they take the arm and now they're like starting to stretch it but I thumb out and I pull out. Yeah. Even to them, that's like a victory because they're like, it's close, mm. right? And they're like in their head, they're like, oh, you know what I mean? Right, right. And they get that little bit of a boost where they're not constantly under fire and and I preach all the time at, at my gym about like optimal level of difficulty. I, I say this all the time to my students, mm-hmm. right? Like. Everybody that I roll with, I want to hit that flow state. I want to get the optimal level right. of difficulty. So that means that like, if I'm rolling with a white belt, I can't just smash the white belt. It needs to feel like a give and take. It needs to feel like they had moments of success other than just 
pure survival. If it's too easy, they get bored. If it's too hard, they hit that wall and they feel like they can't open up. Mm -hmm. And then the class drags on for hours. But if you can hit that flow state of like optimal level of difficulty and everybody feels like they're in a battle where they have a chance to have some success, the whole experience is so much more enjoyable and the development is much faster. Right. Yeah, no, I, I basically agree with everything you were saying. Um, yeah, I mean, it's as a coach, you have to think how, how you're going to force skill development because contrary to a popular belief, skill development is not what most people come to the academy to do. Most people come to the academy and they just want to win their rounds, right? And there's, I think there's two ways you can do this. First is like cultural, and you're definitely right. It is hard, especially when you're dealing with young competitors who have egos and things like that. You know, At the end of the day, like you can't control whether they have egos. Um, I try to police the room the best I can to integrate a culture of improvement. I've seen it done, you know, Danaher did it, and uh, a good friend of mine, Carl Massaro, he's another black belt under Henzo Gracie, he basically came up with Danaher at the same time. I really love his school, it's a very similar environment to the Blue Basement, and like they both, I think, did a very good job of succeeding at developing a culture of improvement rather than like winning, you know what I mean? Obviously, you're still gonna have that though, you're still gonna have students that want to win right like or at all costs right because i think actually wanting to win in the round is important it's just wanting to win technically if that makes yeah, sense i mean you don't give yeah. like freebies to, i mean two blue belts rolling together you're not like Ooh, take my arm right, right but there's right. a middle ground of like if you can't get it if you can't get it without going to that place yeah get to the next thing right transition yeah. to the next thing yeah no i i, I agree um and then, like the second thing is the ultimate way to force skill development is positional rounds. Then you don't get a choice. Do you do a lot of specific training? Yes. Like, what, what do you, what do you rate in terms of like the the amount of time you should spend specific training on a daily or, or let's say a weekly basis, as opposed to like just slap hand fist bump? We're rolling. I think probably half. I think is half good. Half. Yeah, I think half is good. Um, Danaher used to do more positional training than live just regular training i will say this it, 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 so okay so like the way I, the reason why i say have is because i am mature enough about my training that i know that i can use my rounds productively to get better at certain skills that i want to get better at and i'm not just gonna like so for instance like i have a student here who's very good at butterfly sweeps and i keep trying to pass his guard i keep trying to pass his uh, butterfly guard using body lock passing, which I'm not really that good at yet, but I'm trying to gain that skill, right? And half the time, maybe more than half the time, he sweeps me over. You know what I mean? I, I'm expecting that to happen, to be honest. You know, and like I could, I could just leg lock him every round. Right? Yeah, you could just not play that game, <laughs> shut it down, right? Yeah. Sit, sit and pull into Ashy or something like that. Right. And but then it's sort of like, what am I getting out of that round? You know, I'm just sharpening a sword that's already sharp. You know, you, I, you still always need to work on what you're good at, but I'm. In that specific situation, he's good at something, and I'm trying to practice basically getting past that. Um, but from a coaching perspective, it can be difficult because you don't know if all of your students are, especially initially, going to have that kind of a mindset, right? Like until that culture is ingrained, it can be difficult to force everybody to train in like the right way. You know yeah. what I mean? And it takes experience too, right? Like yeah. you, you get some of those. There's some lessons that no matter what your coach teaches you. Only personal experience will get you to that place, right? Mm -hmm. Like you can, I get, I get a lot of those those young guys too that just want to go, they want to go, and even they're good training partners for a lot of people. But they'll get into those positions where, as I say, they 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 can't get out without forcing it, and they just haven't quite hit that maturity level in their training. They haven't seen the light yeah. to know that that kind of thing is actually like hindering their progress, and it's giving them a false sense of 
all of these kind of things. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot of lessons that you can take from your coaching and all that kind of stuff. But then there are some lessons that you kind of just have to learn yeah. with the actual personal experience, right? Like injuries is a big one. You know, you get the people that are way too explosive, exploding out of shit that they shouldn't. Yeah. They'll blow the knee up because they're tense, right? And the tension, right. The falling body weight, all of that stuff is going to be more likely to create an injury when realistically, if you'd just gone with it, Right. If you had given up the battle to win the war, which is spending time training and developing your skills rather than trying to win every single little exchange, then yeah. they won't get these catastrophic injuries that put them out for nine months or, or whatever, right? Mm. Have or, you ever been seriously injured, like had a long one? Yeah. Yeah, I've had bad injuries. Was, this, was <laughs> it that type of example? or? Um, so it's funny. I don't actually know how it happened because I hurt one of my knees very badly when I was a high school wrestler. Actually. Yeah, you were. So that's another thing. Sorry to just interject, but that was an interesting thing about you too. You were a wrestler. Mm-hmm. You've had MMA fights as well. So I, yeah. I find it interesting about you is like, I mean, you're clearly like jujitsu, right? Dedicated to that specific craft. But yeah. I do like that you went through the wrestling experience mm-hmm. and the MMA fights because it does give you a, a, a larger context with which to mm-hmm. to know those skills and to apply those skills and to teach your students those concepts. I really, really love grappling pretty much everywhere. So I love wrestling. Like, I love watching high-level wrestling. There are times where I get so into high-level wrestling, I'm more into that than jiu-jitsu. <laughs> yeah, I watch the NCAAs every year. I was a high school wrestler, too. Oh, okay, So nice. that, was, that was my first ever experience with grappling. I re- wrestled all the way through middle school and mm-hmm. high school. And then I found jiu-jitsu when I was, like, 16. Yeah. Oh, okay, nice. Yeah, I mean, it's a common experience with Americans, I yeah. think. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, so, uh, and then... I, I love MMA grappling too. It's funny because like most of MMA, like I'm not into the striking to be honest. Like even when I was fighting, like I just had almost no interest in striking. Like were, were, when you had your MMA fight, were you just looking to get into your positions with the leg, or did you spend time like boxing and doing Muay Thai? Just I, defense mostly, or like to set up your clinches and stuff like that. I, I did work boxing. Um, you know, I, I I like I. So what's funny is I I prefer watching pure striking. To MMA striking, if really? that makes any sense. Yeah, because like I don't know, like I like what I'm really interested in is seeing like a skill isolated and then refined. Oh, you know, like okay. yeah, I, I really like like boxing to me is really fun. But I mean, like I'm, I mean, ultimately grappling is really what what I'm into. Uh, when I when I was fighting, I was like doing very little striking. <laughs> I did a little, like I definitely I hit mitts and stuff, and I think I'm like probably a better striker than people think, but like not really a very good one. And it just wasn't my wasn't my forte, and uh, I wasn't really there to do that. I was. So, what was the motivation behind the MMA fight? Was it just to see? Because I mean, my first one was just to see what my skill set would look like in actual combat, rather mm-hmm. than like sparring at the gym. Right. right? What yeah. was your motivation to take the the MMA fight then? Um. I don't. I didn't really have a very good one. I guess. <laughs> well, I mean, it is what it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was I was training at an MMA gym, and I was pretty much just a jujitsu guy. And like the coach was like, I literally he literally just asked me if I wanted to fight, and I was like, okay, I guess I'll do, I'll do a fight. Like, yeah, there wasn't really that much because like I remember he so he actually kind of pressured me into doing it. Yeah, like they I do that. <laughs> yeah, I was like I was like I think I just want to do jujitsu, and he said to me he goes well if you just want to have fun and uh, do jujitsu you can do that, and I was like oh. challenge accepted motherfucker let's go <laughs> yeah so, so I said sure and I I went up heel hooking the guy in like a minute it was pretty it was pretty fast um, and then I had four fights in total so I went two and two and I uh, never lost the first round. And <laughs> I did okay in the two that I lost. They were decision losses, so I never, I never got finished. What happened? You just get stuck on the bottom, couldn't get a submission or something like that? Yeah, one of them, I think pretty debatably you could argue I won because 
he didn't really do anything to it was like I think in Japan pride rules I would have got it because I was going for the submission the whole time but I was on bottom the whole time right. most of the fight yeah. right you're more active from the bottom but he's on top that yeah, kind of thing yeah exactly um, like so for instance second round I scored a takedown I honestly wish I just stalled on top but what I did was I fell back for a heel hook oh yeah he, yeah then he spun out he, he defended well and then he wanted my close guard and he didn't he didn't hit me you know I, I did a good job of clinching everything I only got punched hard once in any of my fights you know, so I, I focused a lot on clinching to not get punched, you know, like I, I played like actually rubber guard, believe it or and not. And you're falling, <laughs> falling back into Ashy or something from a clinch. Yeah, like yeah. Like Ryan Hall kind of style. Yeah, very similar. So like I, you know, I, I, I hit takedowns a lot too. My third yeah, because you wrestled, so. Yeah, yeah, I was doing double legs, single legs. My goal was ideally to be on top, but I also wanted to go for leg locks a lot. So like I would, that would mean going on bottom. Um, I think that, so, you know, I think I learned a lot from my fights about like, it really pushed me. That was so. At the time, leg locking was not really super popular in jiu jitsu yet. What year was this? I my last fight was I think twenty fourteen. Okay. So I was pretty young. You know, I was like, uh, it's when I was in college, you know, doing philosophy. <laughs> Did this for fun on the side. Yeah. Like I, I remember I was at a weigh in once, and I had a copy of Immanuel Kant's Critique of Judgment. <laughs> and one of the uh, that's a like aesthetic. These are good German philosopher. It's a book on aesthetics. And then one of the, uh, I think one of the guys that was doing like the tech work for the event, like he was like camera production. He was like, I have never seen a fighter bring Emmanuel Kant to a weigh-in. <laughs> I was like, it was just what I was reading on the train. Like, yeah. Uh, but like, anyway, so like, um, um, yeah. So like, I, I think I learned a lot from my fights, you know, like, and, 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 and now I, I, people have asked me if would I fight again an MMA fight, you know what I mean? Uh, maybe. I'm not opposed to it. I, I definitely would. It, for me, it wouldn't be to be an MMA fighter per se. It would be to like, I like the idea of having, I think competition can provide a strong motivation to uh, develop skills, right? And I think that I'd like, I like the idea of having the motivation to practice MMA grappling more because I do think it's interesting. I think it's fun. Um, well, I was going to ask you, I mean, that was the, the kind of the direction I, I wanted to go at some point in this podcast was what do you think the role of, of leg locks is in sort of modern MMA? Because at, as the skills are developing, leg lockers are getting better and better and better. You're starting to see them emerge a little bit in MMA. But it still seems like generally they do get shut down more. Yeah. And part of it is the fact that you're loose, the, the added element of striking, and the fact that I think there hasn't been a whole lot of systemization specifically with developing a leg locking game for MMA. In other words, being aware of like frames when you're using both of your hands to attack the heel or the knee, judging the distance, actually getting in there. So what's your take on that? Do you think that they'll remain... To, in, in the sense that they've been so far, which is a relatively low percentage, I would mm -hmm. say. You know, obviously, you get the Paharises, you get the Ryan Hall, you, you know, he healed BJ Penn. Mm -hmm. Of course, you get those elements of it. They, they do seep in. And I'm not saying that they're not effective in MMA. They are. They do seem less effective, but that's with the caveat that the skill is really, really developing now. Yeah. So what, what's your take on all that? Do you think we'll see a, a leg locker go through and, and get get their way to the win, like with the same rate that you see people master the rear naked choke or master the guil the guillotine or arm bar or something like that? Well, so, so, okay, so the first thing I'll say is I don't ever want to coach leg lockers. I want to have people that are well-rounded, right? I don't think anyone's ever going to get to a high level just doing leg locks. I don't think you're going to do that in grappling or MMA. You get what I mean? Yeah, totally. Yeah, in isolation, right, it, it wouldn't work. You want the yeah. whole skill set. Yeah, yeah, I don't think you're ever going to have success only doing one thing. 
period, point blank, you know, and leg locks are obviously part of that, right? Um, okay, so I think we're very fortunate that the closest, I think, um, grappling rule set to MMA, the, the, the grappling rule set where the skill set needed to win uh, at the highest levels that it's similar to the skill set you need to succeed with grappling at the highest levels in MMA is ADCC, which yeah, is what for people, sure. Yeah, it's what people take the most seriously. So as a result, I think a lot of what works in ADCC will translate over well to MMA and vice versa, right? Obviously it's different, but a lot of the same skill sets will translate over. And I think that I think the main reason they're low percentage right now in in MMA isn't a reflection on the utility of the techniques, but rather it's a reflection on that people, quite frankly, just are like dog shit at them. Yeah, it's <laughs> the skill level. Yeah, and and I mean, and I think for a very understandable reason, right? If I'm a coach, if I'm an MMA coach, and I have a certain amount of time with my fighter to allocate the skill development, I don't think leg locks are at the top of the priority list. But I don't think they're at the bottom of the priority list. Like so, for instance, like people take time out of their day to have their athletes work swinging close. Uh, close guard arm bars and like the reality is that's in my opinion a borderline complete waste of fucking time yeah. you know what I mean I, you, to me leg locks are more worth your time than that you know close guard just in general is kind of a waste of time in MMA I would say I, I agree yeah. <laughs> like, it's so static your shoulders are pinned on the ground and someone's on top of you with posture and gravity you just yeah yeah it's pretty it's pretty dire it's not a good position to be in but um even, and even if you like I learned, like in my fights, I clinched while I didn't get hit that much, but I still lost the rounds. You know yeah. what I mean? I mean, so. it can be useful if you're stuck there and someone's obviously clinching there to mitigate the strikes if you're rocked. And, <laughs> but eventually, you would need to get get out of there and get to a position that's a little bit more fluid and can yeah. provide sweeps. Like I'm all about half guard for MMA if you're on the bottom. Yeah. Right? At least something like that that allows you to come up with an underhook, get to your feet. Mm. I mean, close guard literally locks you into your opponent yeah. from the bottom position. Yeah, which, which can have its utility but yeah there's also big drawbacks to it um but so yeah so it's it's not the top of the priority list but i do think it's somewhere in the middle and i think that as a result um and right now it's just like it hasn't been widely taught and i think that what if it gets to that stage i don't know if it even will but if it gets to that stage in mma what's more widely taught i think that it can be used very effectively now uh so the question is like how do you use it effectively, right? So I think the best way to use leg locks is from the bottom position. Okay, so if I'm on, if I if I'm an MMA and I'm on top, do you think it's very smart most of the time to be dropping? Yeah, down of them? course not. No, probably not. It even makes sense for the scoring system, right? Because if you're yeah. on top and you fall back, you're done. But if you if you try to roll for a leg lock when you're on bottom, you're not conceding the top position. You're exactly. not losing points for a sweep. Yeah, and oftentimes you are getting the top position if you don't get the finish, right? So the highest level of leg locking is using leg locking in combination with positional advancement towards the upper body. Right. I try to get my students all the time, like they go for leg locks. I'm like, guys, use the threat for at least consider the sweeps or the back takes like that's yeah. when you really start to get higher i mean i don't claim to be high level but i'm higher than my fucking white belts and my blue belts and stuff right yeah, yeah. so i'm like at least you know you i'll see them get a good position on the heel and then people will turn their back and they'll follow i'm like follow them up like take the yeah. top position take the back you're really good at, at taking the back off of it as well you showed Thank me a few you, of those yeah. drills when you're there when you're doing like the the cross ashy and people turn away to come up and you limp leg out and then right. come in on the back and yeah, yeah, no, that, 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 that's a, a super useful skill set to be able to come on top or, or take the back off the leg locks. And uh, just not enough people do that. Like if you look at a guy like Polyaris, 
he was amazing at finishing, but if he didn't get it, he would just like lands back still. He had nothing. Yeah, yeah. And it sucks to see because he was so good at the finishing part. But you got to be able to follow up. Someone like Ryan Hall is very good at the follow up. Well, he's fascinating, man. Yeah. Ryan Hall's MMA career is super fascinating. I wish he fought more frequently. Yeah, I mean it's. He's got the most interesting style that I've that I've seen in a long. I mean, he throws like wheel kicks and hey, he uses the kicks almost to suck you into boxing range, and then he's MNRI rolling yeah. and and pulling in on your legs, and it's super damn difficult to deal with him. He's basically Imanari but more refined. Yeah. If you look at old Imanari, that's he would just throw crazy kicks. Uh, the big difference is that Imanari's kicks were just like insane. There was really no technique to them. <laughs> Ryan's clearly doing like technical kicks, so that's like the big difference. But I think there's a lot of similarities between those two. Um, but I, to me, the best leg locker of all time in MMA is probably Gary Tonin. And if not, if not Gary, my pick actually for second best leg locker in MMA of all time would actually be Marcin Held. Uh, yeah, I hear his jiu-jitsu is really, really good. Yeah. I know he was like an IBJJF champion and, and did really, really well. He's had mixed success in the UFC, but he's still, I think, a top top 15 guy. Yeah. I never trained with him, but all the word is is that his jiu-jitsu was excellent. Yeah, he well, he competes very well with top jiu-jitsu guys as well as... he, he Yeah, he, he didn't have a great UFC career. Uh, he actually left on a win, which is funny. He's, oh, I thought he was still in the UFC. No, he's... He, Jake, can you pull up Marcin Held's uh, Wikipedia? He went to um, ACB, and his last fight, I think, was PFL. Yeah, he just had a PFL fight last night, Damn. I think. I thought he was still in the UFC, man. Damn. Yeah, he, had a, he fought a guy, um, I forget his name, another European guy, beat him, and then actually left. He might have got more money in ACB. I don't know. But, yeah, but I, I, I'm a big fan of Marcin Helds. Like, I think he's awesome. And Gary Tonin's damn fascinating. What I like about him is he, he's got a fully developed skill set. You can see his striking is good. Yeah. He always was one of the better wrestlers anyway. Mm -hmm. The way he goes in on double legs, single legs, high crotches, and if you get a hold of him, he'll grab your roll. And yeah. He's just really well developed. You got it there, Jake? Yeah. Oh, he's on a streak right now, hey. Let's see what we got here with Marcin Held. Yeah, he did. Oh, yeah, he did go out on a... On a uh, go down. Let's see his UFC career real quick. I haven't seen that, heard that name in a while. So, lost to Will. Oh, that's in Bellator. Okay, so Diego Sanchez. Definitely not the most successful. But Joe Lozon split decision. Then he beat Nasrat, and then submission heel hook. Keep going up, Jake. Uh, heel hook, heel hook. Yeah, yeah. Look at all the submissions. So, so the Musa Kamanaev fight. Apologies, guys. Definitely didn't say that right. But. <laughs> That's okay. We're yeah, masters of bastardizing names on this podcast, bro. Right. <laughs> okay. So, like, anyway, that fight, dude, is an awesome fight. It's, it's the, the the finishing sequence is honestly one of my favorites ever. It's really very fun, very fun, uh, super interesting sequence. Musa Kamanaev almost so Marcin goes for a heel hook. Musa goes for a heel hook. He almost gets Marcin. Marcin does some very advanced late stage defense. He gets out. You can't really see how he gets out of the heel hook because of the camera angle, and I can't find another camera angle but it it's either a heel slip or a toe slip and then Marcin goes on the offense and he gets an inside heel hook and it's it's very beautiful if anyone wants that uh, to see that you can go just youtube uh not youtube just google search it it'll come up on uh, i think yuku so oh i do want to see that I, I didn't know that that's a good little tidbit try to see if we can remember that jake i want to watch that shit i'll still yeah. find it now yeah. just just skip to the end the rest is boring they're just like being they're not doing much. <laughs> I mean, we, we can pull it up. I doubt we're going to get copyright pulled for that. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some things we have. We've, we've gotten a lot of shit on this podcast, but yeah. I think that one should be good. Yeah, I'm, I'm really interested in this, man. And I, I can tell you're just a 
fucking nerd for this, dude, because I always see you like <laughs> posting your breakdown of like you studying and watching stuff, and you put yeah. your Instagram is one of my favorite ones to watch. Thank you, because because <laughs> I'm learning really from watching, and I I say I literally show you on my phone. I've saved at least like ten of your videos nice, of nice. watching you do your your transitionings when you're doing the leg locks and stuff. Because yeah. I mean, it's hard for me to keep up with some of it, like the way that you're pummeling your hands and feet and then sliding into it. Right. And it's right. all about like 30% speed. You're just kind of flowing into it. Mm. And I'm just like, damn, that's that's the next level. That's what I'd like to get going. But some of those transitions are pretty pretty sticky, hey, if you're not yeah. well, well versed in it. It's like learning a new language almost. You got to become adept in it piece by piece you got to understand all the words and then you put together the grammar you know but um let's well, yeah let's definitely pull this up we can actually break it down if you guys want yeah, it's, it's not it's not long it's a pretty quick um go to go to google if you just search it it should come up yeah so i'm just trying to it's it's very i'm telling you if you ter- type it it's very easy to find yeah ignore you know reddit just search yeah I, I think it might be on a russian site actually not oh YouTube. yeah yeah the russian and chinese sites are the best <laughs> <laughs> yeah search Mar- marching held versus musa kamana I, I could spell that if you need me to you can spell that yeah i've sp- i've searched enough times and now i know how to spell it. that's the only like, bro that's the only reason i know how to spell it <laughs> yeah I did just get uh, somebody just hit me up on Instagram about doing a seminar in Moscow. Uh, oh, nice. I, yeah, so I'm, I'm uh, obviously we can't travel yet, but whenever I can, I also I'm supposed to be. Uh, this does. Oh, this looks like it. Yes, yes. So we transition so, to the end there. Just what the last minute or so of the fight? It's it's about yeah. You, you you should be able to. Yep, this is it. Just go back a bit. See, this is already. Uh, oh, one thing, uh, Robert, I want to talk about too is that 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 thing we'll do for your buddy. Hey, the, it's in India. Oh yeah, we'll, definitely. We'll hit that up later. Yes, we'll, we'll talk about that. But I want to just remember. Yeah, to, yeah. Okay, to yeah. Do our best to market that while we're. While yeah, we're yeah. Okay, so okay, let's, so let's check this out. So, so you can hit play here, I guess, and it'll it should go to it in a second. Um, I usually just skip right to the end, so I actually don't even know what they're doing here. Okay, <laughs> okay it's right here. Pause, pause, pause. So wait, okay, so that was a dope sweep, just first of all. Yeah. So wait, so, so if you, uh, make sure to pause it because it's the, 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 it's happening very very quick. I do want me to bring it back. Yeah, bring it back. And if you're listening to this podcast, you should check this one out on the video because uh, Robert's gonna break this down and we're gonna get some interesting little tidbits, or at the very least, check out this section. Yeah. Um, so do me here X out the thing uh, like the more videos recommended. Yeah, I, hopefully that just stays away. All right, so hit nice play. and slow here, Jake. Just kind of tap the <laughs> I'm tap on the it. play button. You got it, bro. Okay, stop right here. Stop right here. Okay. Oh, so, beautiful lift. Look at that. Yeah. So so he's getting uh, Marcin is getting swept over here, and now what you're going to see is as soon as Marcin hits the mat, immediately what he does is he goes over into what we call far hip ashi. Uh, so play it. I'll hit. Uh, t- I'll tell you when to hit pause. Right here. Okay, pause right here. Okay, so this is what we call a far hip ashi. So if you see Marcin's left leg, that's over Musa's uh, right hip. And then you see Marcin's right leg is coming over the top. So his the goal, this is like a reaping position, right? The goal here is to put pressure to the back of Musa's knee such that the heel comes off the mat, right? So if the foot is completely on the mat, you can't gain heel exposure, right? You can't grasp the heel to do a heel hook. So you've got to get... You always need to get one part of the foot off the mat. You know, sometimes, so if you do an ankle pick, obviously you're not going to leg lock somebody with an ankle pick, but if you get an ankle pick, what you're doing is you're pulling the heel to get the toes off the mat. Then once they're on the ground, then you could heel hook them, right? So this this is mainly designed for heel exposure. Yeah, this is a, this is a this is a variation of ashigrami, which brings the heel off the mat to gain heel exposure. Yeah, you you usually won't finish people here. It's definitely not impossible, uh, but it usually requires them to be defending wrong. So 
if we look here, so before you go the next step, uh, take a look at Musa's right leg. So now we know what Marcin's doing. Musa counters very, very well. So hit play and get ready to pause in a second. Okay, stop right here. So as they were landing, oh yeah, yeah, Musa. So this position is called a double far hip ashi. So you both have far hip ashis, right? So yeah, it's a pretty simple name. Uh, so here, this is a very complicated position. I've been working on this position a lot. I think it's like a, a super interesting one. It's one that I think hasn't really been studied at length yet, and so I'm I'm trying to do that. Uh, there are people that are good at it, but it it hasn't really been deeply studied yet. I think. Uh, but anyway, so Musa here. Now, Musa's got a heel hook. They both have a heel hook. So for whatever reason, Marcin, obviously, as you can see uh, on his facial expression, it seems as if he's concluded, okay, who? <laughs> I mean, you can see his heel is, 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 he's got the bite on the heel there. Yeah, but, but Musa's was definitely tighter. So as we see here, Marcin goes into defense mode. So Musa's got a heel hook. So Musa's in the green, Marcin's in yes. the, it's kind of a grainy, Marcin's in the red. Yeah, oh, sorry, yeah, I guess if you guys are watching you're not sure who's who musa is the guy in the green yes so musa is so now the, the goal of a far hip ashi is to put pressure to the back of the knee to lift the heel off the mat to expose the heel the goal you have is then to roll to an outside ashi so as we're going to see in a second what musa is going to try to do is he's going to try to get marcin to roll to break him in an outside ashi uh, for examples of this actually working you can go look at like any polyaris fight it's very happens all the time. Uh, it's what Polaris is like main attack, to be honest. Uh, now, Marcin's very good defensively, and he's going to employ a very, very uh, crafty late-stage defense here. So hit play and get ready to pause again. So look at, so he's struggling a little bit. He rolls, and now stop Whoa. right here. So what happened there was, so, so maybe we'll replay this again. What happened here was Marcin rolled at pace and then outpaced him so if you roll at pace if you stay let's say you're keeping the same pace with the guy what happens is that's called the problem of the shared spiral for, for the for the offensive man right it's hard to break the guy because you keep spinning together yeah. right now the trick is in mma you're actually fortunate if as the offensive man because guess what you can hit the cage if you hit the cage the problem's gone oh, the shared spiral's gone yeah, yeah that's interesting i hadn't thought about that so so i i call that the principle of limited space so in, in a grappling match you've got infinite space so you can roll out of bounds and guess what if you roll out of bounds that favors the defensive guy they're going to stand you back up right yeah. in in uh, mma you don't have that problem it's 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 <coughs> very oh, yeah. <laughs> no worries <laughs> don't tell moh anyway so, <laughs> so it's like it's very similar to like uh, takedowns right the mma is much easier actually to get takedowns you can put a guy against a cage and you can start to yeah i never that. thought about the, the the barrier in this in the context of leg locking mm. and the, it, what the cage does it's it, to me it's a single biggest difference so if you guys want to see an example check out ian and whistle versus anthony burchak in that match they keep spinning and spinning and spinning guess what they hit the cage and then ian gets gets the finish it's a very strong finish um, it's a finish that I think would be hard to get in grappling because it's a he's he has a diagonal ashi which it's kind of hard to tap the guy because you can keep spinning forever but guess what they hit the cage and then you can get the finish right but anyway so here let's go back and just watch that late stage defense again Marcin he doesn't just keep pace with him he outpaces him and because he outpaces him what happens is he doesn't just spin as fast as him he spins faster than him and so as a result his leg rotates within Musa uh, Musa's hips such that the angle is wrong for the heel hook. He points the front of his knee into Musa's hips, which makes it impossible for Musa to apply, I'm not, I shouldn't say impossible, I guess, but very difficult for him to apply heel hook breaking mechanics. He could have shifted into kind of like a, a loose knee bar, but it's not really a great angle because 
Marchand's knee is pretty close to the knee line. You know what I mean? So he's yeah. yeah it's, it, so if you watch Pagliarius, what he used to do was he would – he wouldn't even – you can't really stop the shared spiral. It's tough. So as the offensive man – Especially if you're going for the outside heel look, right? Yeah, especially with the outside heel look, yes. So as a result, what Pagliaris would do is he would switch to the knee bar. Musa probably doesn't have the same level of experiences as uh, Pagliaris. So when he goes for this – I mean, he definitely doesn't, right? It's Pagliaris. Yeah. But when he goes for this, he doesn't have that same like sort of – instinct to switch to the knee bar right so as we play here so let's watch it uh one more time so he goes for it clearly he's got a good bite they roll and oh. it's up right oh, here oh yeah that looked gnarly yeah half, I mean, a, it, half a second back there jake just so we can see the torque on that knee yeah he was he was definitely about to be heel hooked pretty bad that's what that's what makes he, it super uh, late little, stage a little further i know we're, we're, we're putting you to work bro <laughs> The frame rate's so bad on it, I can't get it. That's good right there. That's perfect. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you can see he's definitely got some torque there. Yeah, and very clearly uh, in a bad position is Marcin, right? Yeah, he's, it, yeah. yeah, he's trying to slip the heel or point the toes or something. Well, so he's so he's uh, spinning faster. Than this is so late stage, you're not gonna, there's no way you're heel slipping or toe slipping. The knee's not at the right angle to do that, and the grip is... Too, it's too tight. You're not going to heel slip or toe slip at this point. So your only option, or Marcin's only, I'm not going to say his only option, but his best option is is outpacing him with the roll. So here, if we hit play. But they are running into the barrier here. Yeah, but so Marcin, he does it in time. <laughs> he had one chance, and he got it on the one. So they spin, and now look right here, stop. So you, as I said before, you can't see what happens with his foot, but he obviously got out, right? He spun faster than him. He made it impossible to imply either lateral or rotational braking mechanics. Those are the two main types of heel hook braking mechanics. And Marcin uh, basically put Musa in a position where the only thing he had was a kind of like a trash knee bar, a loose knee bar. And then uh, now Marcin is able to pass off to a 50-50. And now from here, we can just hit play, and Marcin, Marcin gets a really nice inside heel hook. So yeah. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> yeah. And stop right here. Oh, once he gets the foot on the hip, he can bridge in. Uh, go, go back a step right as uh, he gets the heel. Okay, hit play and stop in one second. He's a little high on that heel, too. Stop right here. Okay. Yeah, so, so one of the big mistakes people make when doing leg locks in MMA is, they, and I, I would say actually in grappling too, people make this mistake all the time, is they don't create a barrier between their opponent's upper body and their own upper body. They just let somebody come towards them, and MMA that means they're going to get fucking punched in the face, right? Yeah, even yeah. in grappling, they can hand fight, right? Yeah, exactly. They can come forward and hand fight. Here, Marcin, okay, obviously, Marcin's very, very advanced at leg locking. He's got a lot of experience, you know. Uh, and so he knows right away he's got to create a barrier between his upper body and his opponents. So if we look at his uh, right leg, it's coming over the top. We call that X legs. X legs is kind of a catch-all term for a variety of different positions. You should probably stop using it because... <laughs> not specific enough. It's not specific enough, yeah. Uh, people are starting to narrow down the names but all the names I've heard have just been absolutely abysmal <laughs> one, one will stick eventually they, they tend to stick yeah and yeah. that also gives him just way more power to bridge to apply hip pressure in the side of the knee right yeah for sure so Marcin is using rotational braking mechanics here you can identify that because the angle of his hips in relation to Musa's primary leg so yeah. if you look at Marcin's hips they're facing into the back of the knee that's a telltale sign to you that he's using rotational as opposed to the side where you would bridge yes. directly into the side of the knee right yeah that, that would be lateral braking mechanics which okay, so can, actually can you elaborate on that a little bit? I'm, I'm curious. Sure, so, yeah, Because yeah. I get curious about the, 
the forces when I'm applying heel hooks, mm-hmm. my upper body relative to my lower body. Yeah. Right? Of course, I know that the lower body is meant to be bridging, but I, sometimes, because I don't, I don't know when I'm meant to like twist sideways or when I'm meant to tuck. Yeah. To tuck in. So I'm, I'm actually a little bit lost on the details there of the lateral mechanic and the twisting mechanic. Yeah. So, so first of all, I will say it's a misconception that you always should bridge. In fact, there are many cases where I think bridging is counterproductive. And I think because you can curl sometimes, right? Like if you're in the, if you're in the outside Senkaku, then you're back healing. And yes. Um, so especially, so I think a big one is, I think in outside Senkaku, you're right. I wouldn't, sometimes you can bridge there. I don't always bridge. It really depends on certain things. Um, but with the outside Ashi, I think bridging is oftentimes very bad. I don't think it's going to help mm-hmm. you. In fact, I think it will mostly fuck up your break. Because what happens is the downside to bridging, if you think about it, like he wants his knee pointed out, right, on an outside heel hook. So when you bridge to the side of his knee, you help him do that, right? So and as he, opposed to bridging, you, you would what, like just squeeze, curl? Uh, so, okay, let's talk about the two different types of breaking mechanics. You've got rotational and lateral. Yeah, right? what was that? Can we just get that? Yeah, yeah. So rotational involve bridging through the knee so you basically if, if, if your hips are facing like like what's happening right here with Marcin and Musa can you, right? can you pop it up there again Jay please yeah, so if you, thank you bro if you look and see Marcin's hips at the, uh, facing into the back of Musa's knee yeah. that's going to enable him to bridge up right so he's bridging up and through the knee which is not the, the for, directionality of the force that you would want ideally is that what you're saying uh, no no no, no. The, this is very good oh, no, this, this is what is, you would want the, the, well you there's you have an option you have two options I mean, obviously it's very dependent upon the specific configuration of your legs here Marcin couldn't really use lateral mechanics. I'll, I'll get to that in a second sure. to explain it. So first of all, what you want to do is you want to bridge through the knee, and then you want to drive your elbow into his center line. As you draw your wrist towards your chin, you can and you round out your shoulders. And uh, there's a lot of different things that can happen with the grip and things like that. That it starts to get hyper specific. But the main thing you're trying to do is bridge up through the knee and drive your elbow into his center line and draw your wrist to your chin. Those are the so can you can you demonstrate? Yeah, well, with, with your upper body, best I can. <laughs> yeah, best, I know. We're giving you limited options here, bro. But so if you you're like, look, you're you, if you have, think about it. Like my shoulders are flat back, right? This is very this like this is very bad, right? If I'm like this, what happens is I take the heel with me as my upper body goes mm-hmm. back, right? So you want to bring your chin to your uh, uh, you want to bring your wrist to your chin, then you want to bring your chin to your wrist grab everything tight, round your shoulders, and take everything back as a single unit versus if I do this. I'm trying to pull your yeah, hands to, yeah. It's not good, right? This is pretty bad. So you run everything out, and then you drive the elbow into the center line, right? Just drive towards his hips, yeah. right? And this is what, that's doing. what that is doing is you're going like this as everything's nice and tight, and you bridge up and through the knee. There are certain problems associated with that, defensive problems, especially the elevation of your opponent's far hip. If you see here, Moose's far hip, in this case his right hip, is, uh, you see how that's coming off the mat? He's yeah. doing that so he can start spinning, right? To relieve the pressure of the break, but it's MMA, you're gonna hit the cage. So here, it doesn't matter. Um, lateral breaking mechanics are very different. Lateral breaking mechanics, instead of bridging up and through the knee, you're focused more on putting pressure to the top of the thigh. So when you put pressure to the top of the thigh, okay. and there you're, uh, it's not about driving your elbow into his center line, it's about driving your elbow back into your own hip. So you drive your elbow back into your own hip and you put pressure to the top of his thigh, and there's various ways you can do this. And there, it's all about the contrast between pulling, so your elbow goes back and you pull your, this, this is the same, you pull your wrist to your chin mm-hmm. as you put pressure down to the top of his thigh. That, it's, that's kind of more like, it's almost really more like an arm bar, you know what I mean? It's more like direct contrast of forces there. For a long time, everybody 
thought rotational were the most popular then people were like oh this is too easy to stop by spinning so everyone started doing lateral braking mechanics now i think we've reached a stage where both are very effective you know what i mean like depending on the defense depending on what your partner is giving you yeah dude you should totally do a video breaking down that difference because that there's definitely some nuance there that's mm -hmm. lost on me i mean i tend to just go like if i can like if i'm in one of those gray areas where I, i'm not sure which breaking pressure to apply yeah. I'm always just trying to get my hips to the side of the knee mm. like anything in between I'm just trying to get there I'm not trying to like yeah change the pressure depending on what like, I'm just if I because I don't know right? yeah so I'm just trying to get like a straight on if I'm doing the inside heel hook I'm trying to get my hips directly on the side of the knee heel exposure heel yeah. to the mat or back flat and I'm just trying to bridge in yeah you know what I mean and keep the little bit of bend on the knee and well, well so it's interesting you said back flat that would be rotational because if your back's flat typically your hips are going to be pointing to the back of the uh, yeah the back of the knee rather than the side. You get what well, I mean? Yeah. Well, I'm thinking if I'm in like a cross ashy, right? I, yeah. I can go I can go heel to the mat, a little bit of hip height, and then bridge and rotate. Mm -hmm. Or if I'm in that same position, I'll go flat back, single leg bridge, like in a triangle, and then bridge into the side of the knee. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking. But again, the nuance yeah. here is lost on me. So I'm finding this very interesting because I'm I'm a geek about this shit too, and I just yeah. literally have not been exposed to somebody who's so well-versed in all the nuance here. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it gets very gets very complicated. I think breaking people's legs at a high level is, like, much more technically complicated than, like... Uh, An arm bar or a choke, I would say. I, I, I mean, there are yeah. layers you can add to all of that, of course, right? right? But, yeah. the, but the... I don't know. The it, it, I do struggle with... Maybe it's just because I haven't started from the beginning with it. I'm mm -hmm. sure that... I think they're all difficult. I don't want to. Sure. I don't want to rank them. Probably the rear strike. Yeah. You're right. It's not really. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely there's levels to it, but it's not. It's not as technically. It's, it's just a little bit more intuitive. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's yeah. the best way to put it. Well, so I used to have fairly constant nightmares where I would catch somebody's <laughs> heel in a match and I wouldn't be able to break it. And <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> and you wake up and you're fucking sweating and you got your own heel in your arm. And <laughs> yeah, I would just be like, because it was like I don't know, like I. I had a couple matches where I couldn't actually. I got the heel because what happens in training? Oftentimes you catch the heel, the guy just taps. Yes. Yeah, so that, that's I'm at that stage now, and if yeah. I roll with my like better students now, I, I I feel like I have it, and then I'll go, and then I, it won't be there because they're starting to build more. Def they're not tapping immediately anymore. Yeah. They're starting to play with the defense and like when am I safe? When am I not? So now I'll, I'll get it sometimes, and it's just just not right, and I'm still in that process of trying to figure out. What's up? Mm. Yeah, I mean, so the solution is you've got to go into training with the conviction that you just want to hurt your students. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, no. Just, just tear the ACL, dude. Come on. Yeah. So, no, no. Like, uh, like all jokes aside, like, um, you've got to be willing to take it fairly late stage, but that that's a whole... This is a, I, that's a tricky thing to train, right? That, that really late stage heel hook defense because yeah. you build your awareness yeah. of the submissions like over time mm -hmm. and if you go a little bit too far one time then you know your knee pops and you're you're out for a while and yeah it, i have never seen uh, a bad knee injury at henzo's from heel hooks though which i you know I, I tell that to people all the time because i think people would be shocked to hear that they would imagine aren't legs shattering left and right like <laughs> no no not really i've seen the much worse injuries from wrestling oh wrestling's the worst yeah falling body weight is like universally in my opinion the number one reason for people getting injured yeah it's usually I, takedowns people hitting the mat or you know like space complications where people are running into each other and, yeah you know I, I totally agree. I think it, falling body weight is one of the worst things for, for injuries. 
but leg locks, I think as long as you are training with people who you trust and you're going, the rule that I give my students, it's not really even that hard to apply is if you don't have any experience, three seconds, you're done. That's it. I don't, I don't care how close you think you are to getting out. Three seconds and you're done. If you don't really know what you're doing, that's it. Three seconds is enough, right? Uh, it could even be too much, right? But three seconds is a rule. Beyond that, for the... Assuming the person applying it applies slow, steady pressure and doesn't fucking spaz out. And yeah, so the second rule is for the guy doing the lock. The second rule for the guy doing the lock is you have to go zero to one to two to three to four to five to six, not zero to 100, yeah, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, if you go zero to 100, that's when people get injured, right? So you have to go zero to one to two to three. And the reality of it is, is if you don't know how to go incrementally through the break, if you don't know how to apply pressure incrementally, you don't actually know how to control the break. Yeah. And if you don't know how to control the break, against anyone good you're never going to get it you know what i mean now you still have to do it you still have to apply the pressure like for real but like i said i've you know been in very deep heel hooks many times and i fought my way out and sometimes i, I didn't fight my way out and i've never been injured in training from from a heel hook i've been injured in training but almost always wrestling, wrestling. not not heel hooks yeah so it's you know it's like um it's i think a safer thing to train than people give it credit for. You just have to train with uh, respect for the lock, and you need to like not not be uh, crazy people with each other. You know what I mean? So yeah. But anyway, um, uh, should we finish up on that on that fight? On just on that on that note? While oh yeah, well, it up here? is it over here? I mean, is it? Yeah. Is it? Well, he yeah he he taps. <laughs> okay, right here. Yeah. Can you just finish playing it, Jake? Let's just see the tap here. I mean, it's oh, 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 oh. oh. there's a last second in brutality yeah. that I haven't yeah. seen yet. Do you want me to play through the whole sequence? Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's do the let's do the whole the whole sequence in sequence. in real time. I send this one to people all the time for an example of the double far hibashi because I I really love this sequence. Put it further back, Jake. Before that, that sweep was was nice too. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, and it's really interesting to see the applications of these in MMA specifically. That's a good sweep. Good timing. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a noob in leg locking, but even some of this, I'm just like, what the fuck is going on? This is a very advanced sequence. Mark Marching is very high level. Yeah. That last little bridge there was rough. His, his knee was okay? Uh, I think. I mean, he tabbed, so, yeah. But, um, yeah, great sequence. I love that one. Uh, and uh, but anyway, so that's that's a good crash course on like late stage leg lock defense from Marcin, and then also we got to look at a little bit rotational, uh, an example of rotational breaking mechanics. Um, a good example, if anyone's curious, of lateral breaking mechanics would be um, okay. If you look up like Lachlan Giles outside Sankaku finishes yeah. at ADCC twenty nineteen. Yeah, his was crazy. He kept getting that backside fifty fifty on everybody and just wrecking all of it, except for Gordon. Gordon just took his back and smashed him. Yeah. But he even had a chance. Like, he got his position and Gordon was like, He, nah, he did catch Gordon's heel. Yeah, yeah. And then Gordon slipped. Um, I forget if it was a heel slip or a toe slip. I think it was a toe slip. But, yeah, I mean, that, that was a good match, too. Um, Were you in on that? That, that Those positions? Before? I'd never seen those positions done that way up until that point. And then I know everybody's playing K-Guard. Everybody's trying to get to the backside 50-50, like, in yeah. the outside Senkaku. I'd, I'd never... That was my first exposure to that shit, and I was just like, Here's, here we go again. Yeah. Here's another thing I got to spend way too much time trying to figure out how to do. <laughs> I think everything that's, for the most part, ever going to be done has already been done before. But what Lachlan did was he systemized it in new ways. I think most of what is the future of leg locking is going to be taking stuff that people have already done and systemizing it in new ways, right? Like that's, you know, like 
I can show plenty of matches where K-Guard was used before that. So Gary Tonin against Karen Darabidian at EBI used K-Guard like extensively. Um, Eddie Cummings used outside Senkaku to finish Barry Yoshida. All these things were there. All the pieces of the puzzle were there. But what Lachlan did was he put them together in new and interesting ways. You know, so and that's that's for instance like what I'm trying to do now, like with with new things. I'm looking at positions, trying to explore, take things in in new and interesting ways by compiling them together in in new and interesting ways. Right. Very rarely do people just come up with something that's like never been done before. It happens. You know, yeah. it definitely happens, but it's. Uh, I, especially if you don't study the history of it that much. I am like a historian of grappling. I love just watching old matches no one else cares about. Yeah. <laughs> like going through and like I have a hard drive where I have hours upon hours of stuff that I save and I, I archive and categorize it like uh, in a way that's uh, organized and easy for me to you know get back to. And like, so I'm constantly like seeing stuff that like I'm like, oh, okay. People think this is new, but in fact, this has been around for a long time. But the trick is, so for instance, like Imanari did so much shit back in the day that people are just starting to do now. And then I asked Imanari on Instagram, did you have a name for this? What happened with this? And he's like, he's like, oh, it's just something I did. And like, yeah. <laughs> he just like ended up there, right? And, but he had enough leg locking knowledge to make those mm. things applicable. It's almost like he was just, I don't, he's a very interesting case because it's like, he wasn't clearly wasn't super organized about it, but he got to a very high level. Yeah. I consider that guy one of the biggest innovators in the history of the sport. Oh, for sure, he's definitely yeah. the OG original leg locker in MMA. Who, yeah, who, who came before him? I mean, there was he. I mean, before you know, he. I mean, he's before Aoki. He's before anybody that had like success. But he specifically developed his game around that. Like yeah. he would just sit down in the middle of matches, right, and then just tell people to come on, and then he's trying to roll in on their legs. I mean, the yeah. role was named after him. That's deliberate. Just. Only a leg attack, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, pretty much. Really, nothing else you could do with that. Yeah, I mean, you can maybe yeah. get a sweep off of it if you get their butt to the mat, but yeah. take the finish instead, right? I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. He's he's super super interesting. So, like a, a, a specific example of this is so Gordon Ryan's finish against Monsieur Kara. Imanari had a very similar finish against Nam Fan in an MMA fight that like 15 people saw. So <laughs> I never saw. I never knew they fought. I know both guys, but yeah. I didn't know they fought in MMA. It's a super cool. It's a super cool match. Really nice inversion by Imanari into the heel hook, and you know, uh, Gordon did the same thing against uh, much, uh, not much, much. Uh, sorry, not much. Uh, Mateus Denise, mixing mm -hmm. up Marcelo guys, uh, but. Now, here's the question. Do I think Gordon saw that Imanari fight? No, definitely not. Yeah. <laughs> now, Danaher might have. I'm not sure. But I don't think Gordon watched it. Uh, the thing is, is like, it's very possible. And it, in fact, this happens all the time, that people come up with the same people come up with the same things. They come up with something that someone else already came up with. You know what I mean? Because they're dealing with the same positions. They're trying to solve the same problems, right? So as a result, they oftentimes figure out things that solutions that that overlap right um uh, this is uh danaher actually writes about this and i don't know if you know uh, danaher wrote a book back in the day called mastering jujitsu with henzo right yeah, yeah. With, with henzo yeah but clearly danaher yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you read it uh but like it's it is super good it's super good especially like he talks about like the history of jujitsu and one of the things he writes on that is uh the shared conditions theory of the history of the martial arts which is this idea that okay where the martial arts what 
when we look at the martial arts, should we expect them to be the result of just single geniuses figuring stuff out? And he argues that's kind of a naive way to look at it. In fact, a better way he argues to look at it is what he calls the shared conditions, which is when people with the same tools, right, the human body, we all fundamentally the same bodies, when people with the same tools come to the same problems, the problems of fighting, jiu-jitsu, you know, whatever, oftentimes they're going to come up with the same solutions. So the example he cites is that in every grappling art in the world, there's an example of the double leg. Now, do you think that just one guy figured it out and then went throughout the world teaching everyone the double leg? Yeah. No, no, that's definitely not what happened. What happened was different people throughout the world had the same basic tool set. You know, they had their, their bodies. Limitations of the human body. There's only so many ways to get it down, right? Exactly. I mean, yeah. So they figure stuff out, right? And that happens in grappling a lot too. You know, what, what's interesting is that, um, you know, like you, it's like Lachlan, Lachlan on the, his instructional, his biggest inspirations, he says, were, uh, it was the meows for the K guard and then for the leg locks, I guess like Ryan Hall, but he definitely also studied the DDS guys. Oh, for 100%. sure. Yeah. Everybody did. You're an idiot if you don't, right? Yeah, I mean, when that DVD came out, everybody I knew got it. Cause yeah. They were wrecking people for years, and like they, the the squad was, and, and Danaher were literally saying, like, they wouldn't let people film the seminars, right? Because they were trying to keep all of the systems hush hush. Yeah, yeah. And then eventually they were like, fuck that, charge $300 a pop, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, but anyway, so like, yeah, 100%. Like, everybody studied that, and I'm sure Lachlan is no exception to that. He's a smart guy, so I'm sure he was studying it. And, and like, he gives credit to some of the positions, right? Like, the outside Senkaku. Oh, I mean, uh, okay. I mean, come on, dude. Like, oh, the names? Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Like, that's, <laughs> I think the name is mainly a joke. I heard it was uh, Jeremy Paul Skinner, one of his students, came up with it as like a, like a it's like a meme name. Um, oh, you think it was done in that way? I thought it was kind of done in honor of. Honor? Right? No, I, <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know them, but. I was just like, oh, yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Right, right. Well, you know, I mean, it's it's uh, possibly. But I heard Jeremy Paul Skinner came up with it purely as a joke. Oh, but. <laughs> okay. I didn't know that. That's Which funny. is, yeah, I mean, it's like half the names I come up with are joke names. Like, so we have a grip called the Bill Murray. <laughs> like, like, what's the bill murray that's just it's an overwrap grip you reach over the leg and you grab the secondary leg and uh, why is it called the bill murray okay it's called the bill murray because originally <laughs> this is not even what we do with the grip anymore but originally <laughs> but it's stuck huh? yeah it's stuck the purpose of the grip was to get your head to the other side and it was like i was doing that one day and i was talking to my training partners and i was like i was like what should we call this my one of my training partners, Tong, he was like, oh, it's like a groundhog coming out of a hole. I was like, oh, okay, what's a movie with? It's a movie with groundhogs. Oh, I wonder. Yeah, they're like really, the only one ever. <laughs> yeah, when they said groundhog day, and I was like, all right, so I guess we'll just call this the Bill Murray. It's like we have some. It's funny, like Tenth Planet has a reputation for stupid names. Oh yeah, but, they have the best. I would say. Yes, or at least theirs have transcended the jujitsu culture the most. Right, right, yeah. But we also have very dumb names at at Henzo's that we used. Like uh, we had a move called the Kong Wenge. Which is named after an anime character and uh, <laughs> things like that. So yeah, but um, so yeah, but anyway, yeah. That's cool, man. I, I'm 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 not a historian in the sense of like tracing the like the lineage or the history of the moves, but the history of the martial arts themselves, I found endlessly fascinating. Right? I just did a, a little segment on the last podcast hmm. talking about what, what's that, Jake? Is it uh, his? Yep. Oh, I just touched it. Oh fuck! There you go, dude. Sorry. <laughs> it's a photograph. <laughs> yeah, I'm, the, I'm on the main feed, so it's not going to show up. Okay, okay. <laughs> it's just you. <laughs> okay. 
but I just did a last segment on, on my last podcast because I had a student that competed in Sambo yesterday. Mm-hmm. Have you ever coached anyone for Sambo? No. I've Are you wa- familiar with the I- rules or anything? I'm sport co- Sambo specifically, not combat yeah, Sambo. Yeah, I've watched a lot of sports Sambo. It's weird, man. The rules, Definitely weird. The rules are super weird. It's totally counterintuitive. Like, mm-hmm. So I've been coaching one of my one of my students for it, and we have a couple of judo black belts uh, that teach at Stronghold that are on the, the national Sambo team here in Singapore. Oh, okay. And so I'm trying to familiarize with myself with it because he's going and competing. And... Um, We'll get on the rules later, but so I was talking to a bunch of my students and we did a video on like the shared history of judo, jujitsu, and sambo, right? And about how it all started in the Kodokan Academy in, in Japan and in Tokyo, and they would have all these foreigners come in. Which what was that guy's name? The Russian, you don't know, you couldn't even pronounce it when it was on the podcast. <laughs> Vasiliev, Vasily, uh, something off, <laughs> yeah, but he's the guy that took, took, uh, that form of judo back to Russia and it became Sambo. And he got he got executed. He got right? executed. Yeah. He got shot in the head in prison camp. Yeah, yeah terrible. Well, and then he I got totally it. exonerated later. <laughs> I guess that's a Soviet Union for you. <laughs> yeah. And anyway, and then of course, you know, Maeda took took the teachings to, to of Kano into Brazil and then mm-hmm. met the Gracies and yada yada yada. And so I'm interested in that aspect of it, but the actual like history of seeing somebody like do the first triangle or, or whatever. I never really knew that, but I do remember seeing that old video of like Elio Gracie having somebody in a heel hook in, yeah. in the in the gi, right? So these moves have been around for a long time. Yeah, all of this stuff is, as you say, systemizing it, tweaking it, refining it, and in particular, figuring out like the very specific mechanics of how best to apply them. Like that's yeah. that's the newest thing I've found in jujitsu is the the treatment of the human body as almost like a, a spectacle of engineering. Mm-hmm. Right? It's like, okay, you know, you're at the end of the lever, you can grab it's like the making the, the geometry of the human body and how best to apply like these brakes, for example, and leverage and levers and wedges and mm-hmm. right, I mean that's really getting down to the limitations of the human body and how best to scientifically break down how to fuck it up <laughs> basically yeah <laughs> yeah um it's funny like before i started training at henzo's i was very into like this sort of like academic approach to jujitsu but i thought i was kind of like an idiot for wasting my time on this i was like this is kind of dumb like I'm a, am i the only one that thinks about this stuff like this and then when i went to henzo's i was like no there's a whole community of people who are wasting their time on dumb shit like this so <laughs> and i find that the most interesting like my yeah. two favorite coaches are like faras and and john denner because they're mm-hmm. they take that and I like how they speak. I mean, of course, their actual technical skills in in the way that they've structured their their lessons and and the way that they've systemized things. But also, I just like the way that they speak about it in that sort of academic sense. Yeah, like I find that really interesting, and it it transcends just the art itself, right? I always find that in the fascinating. I mean, one of the things I was mentioned before the podcast about talking to you out was like sort of the philosophy of martial arts and mm-hmm. and I'm really interested in sort of the suffering that you get from training and how you can apply those concepts to your life. I mean I was just talking to Charmaine about how I find these fighting cultures really interesting, right? Like, you know, Thailand is the capital of Buddhism in the world, yet you have these ferocious Muay Thai fighters. Yeah. Right? And how whether it's Buddhism, whether it's Islam, whether it's Christianity, like suffering is the root of all of these things. Mm-hmm. And we live in a world of abundance now mm-hmm. right suffering used to be something we would avoid just as people in general right because life was so difficult already that pleasure had to be sought and had to be allocated in a very particular way when it was available but now all the problems that we have are problems of excess so suffering is something that you kind of have to seek out yeah right in a lot of sense in a lot of senses it is the it is the 
existence in Buddhism, right? I mean, suffering is existence. And if you apply that to a more modern sense, you get something like people need to seek out discomfort in a world that's just riddled with instant gratification and mm. abundance. Yeah. So I, I, that's what I find really fascinating about martial artists in particular is you get bankers and lawyers and all these people that are that are highly successful and when they come in and train with me and they've got kids and they've got a family and they come in and and simulate murder with me three or four times a week during those are the most interesting people right. that you ever meet because they go head on into it and that's there's a secret there mm-hmm. of those people that just share that that bond of like suffering and skill development and mm-hmm. i find that endlessly fascinating i think about on that all the time. I can tell. <laughs> yeah, dude. I mean, fuck, it blows my mind because that's what I love about martial arts, right? Is that element of, of shared suffering that we get because mm. so much of what we do and what we have available to us is just instant gratification. And mm-hmm. Well, it's funny, actually. I was literally just thinking about a very similar topic this morning. I was thinking about, it seems to me like one of the big problems of human existence on like an existential level is that you have on one side of the spectrum boredom. And the other side of the spectrum, fear. And these are two things we both, we, we, we dislike both of these things, but it's hard to fully eliminate one without, I'm sorry, it's, it's hard to like go towards one without sort of like increasing the other, right? So like as you diminish fear, right? We are currently in Singapore, possibly the safest place on the, the face of the planet. And Bro, you can put your <laughs> six-year-old on a public bus and send him to school here. Yeah. Could you imagine doing that shit in New York? <laughs> like, no. dude, they'd put you, they'd take your kid and put him in a... Put them in an orphanage or something. Right. <laughs> well, so, like, yeah. So the fear is pretty low, right? But the boredom is, has a commensurate increase. Like, how often... I do think there are some sort of, like... People complain a little bit too much about how boring Singapore is. I find it really fun and interesting. But there is something to be said. <laughs> there, it can't get boring at times. Like, oh, it definitely can get boring. Yeah. So you've been here much longer than me, so I, I that, there you go. So, <laughs> oh, yeah. Singapore can definitely get boring. I mean, people do hobbies and things like that. Mm-hmm. But that's interesting, your thing about fear and boredom. So how, how, what do you think the best way to approach that is, right? Like, so fear, do you think that there are opposite ends of the spectrum, fear and boredom? Yeah, I was, that's how I was thinking about it. Like, just think about it. Like, as, okay, so as you increase, or rather, as you control one, the other just gets stronger, right? Like, imagine if you're, like, you live a totally... No, go ahead. You're good. Keep talking about it. Keep talking about it. <laughs> okay, imagine you live a totally chaotic life, like you're a party dude, you're, like, adventuring constantly, you're not going to be bored, but what is going to happen is the risk goes up. So more bad shit can happen to you, right? Like, I had situations in some of these countries that I traveled to. I was like, like, this is, like, I was doing stuff to lower my boredom, but it increased my risk. Like, I was, I was partying in Thailand. I almost got into a fight with a Thai guy. <laughs> Like, not good because like you fuck with a Thai in Thailand, you're going to fucking Thai jail. Uh, they will not, you know, like they protect their own, you know. So it's like I didn't fight the guy because I knew if I did. What he, happened? What was the conflict? Uh, it was stupid bar stupidity. <laughs> I don't want to go into it. Just drunken nonsense. Yeah, yeah, drunken nonsense. <laughs> like, uh, uh, you know, and I mean, like I was. I reduced my boredom for the night I wasn't bored. <laughs> At the cost of potentially your own life? Yes. So, like, you lower one, one, in, one increases, right? So, like, the trick is, is, like, I don't think there's a single perfect solution. Different people in different societies are going to weigh one over the other, right? So, for instance, I was talking to a student of mine this morning. She's Singaporean. She was like, why do you guys have so many guns in the U.S.? And I was like, 
I don't, it's like it's like a cultural thing. The government, yeah, the government's <laughs> coming to get us. <laughs> it's, a, it's a cultural thing, you know. It's, it's like we value. I think Americans we value adventure over safety sometimes. Which oh, I, for sure. Yeah, and it goes. I mean, that's. I mean, I'm look fucking, at look at Florida today for the UFC. Yes. Spread the fucking <laughs> COVID. Let's go. Let's go. Let's see some people throw down. <laughs> and Dana White. Dana White said masks are optional, which I think is amazing. <laughs> I, I love it. I'm very over COVID. I'm tired of pretending like I'm. You're not. just like fuck it. I don't give a fuck. I didn't give a fuck from the beginning. You guys can call me an asshole. That's fine. I didn't. I never gave a fuck from day one. Americans were generally just like. Let's let it go. Let's see what happens. Fuck it. I don't know. Thin the herd a little bit. No, I'm not saying that. I'm not no, I'm saying just that. Joking. My, I'm right. just joking. No, I mean it's just like it's just like I don't want to get into COVID, but like nah, I, nah, I'm just making jokes. Yeah, yeah, no, I know. Yeah, but anyway, anyway, so just uh, to bring it back to the boredom and fear. So it's like the trick is, it's like you've got to find a way to balance these things. You know, I think, and I think the martial arts are one of the best. They're one of the best things you can do because what what it does is in reality. So you said simulating murder. Think about it. You're not actually. And so your brain is constantly, you're getting this stimulation of, of fear, positive fear in a sense, which is reducing boredom, but you're actually very safe. You know what I mean? If you're yeah. training in a safe environment. But the thing is, like, and there always is going to be risk. Like you've got to, like, I really like, at the end of the day, like I am actually a pretty conservative person. I'm pretty low risk, right? But... I guess if you look at my life, maybe I'm really not. Because like you said, <laughs> in your head, though. Yeah, yeah. From your subjective point of view, you're like, oh, I'm totally safe. And you're like fucking tearing these <laughs> off and yeah, taking like, fights because meh. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, I, I just, I, I dive into these situations because it's like, it, like I, ultimately, it's like, I feel like life is sort of existentially terrifying. You know, there's something. If you really think about it, absolutely. Yeah. And it's very scared. I'm more scared of what's in here than what's out there. You know what I mean? Does that make mm-hmm. sense? And like, I'm, I feel like so much of my life is about, I, I'm very interested in thinking about how we can, as people, find meaning in a world which constantly seems like it's denying us that. That's what I was doing when I was studying philosophy. I wanted to, I was very depressed as a kid and I wanted to study philosophy because I wanted to find meaning in the world. My, Trying to structure the world around you through this, these ideas and mm-hmm. these concepts that you're reading and studying. Yes, exactly, yeah. And, and then I, you know, sort of, I was I started training jiu-jitsu when I was 18 and when I was going to I started jiu-jitsu when I started studying philosophy in college at the same age and I kind of just um jiu-jitsu was just a hobby to me but then one thing led to another and it became my career and um I think so much of what attracted me to it again at the end of the day I I, it's hard to say like why you're into something you kind of just get drawn to it right but I do think that there is a sense in which that element of chasing uh something scary right and gaining confidence in dealing with that right i think what that can do to you on a very positive level is it can help solve the existential crisis of being you know that sounds like super hippie but like i really mean that i've talked about this on my stories before i think ultimately if as coaches our our chief goal is not to develop the best athletes in the world that is that's going to if we're honest with our work i think that's what we should be shooting for uh but that's going to come as a secondary result of our chief goal which i think is to make people's lives less shit yeah. including our own make people better enrich their lives yeah right yeah so to, to, to add like jujitsu sometimes people take this too far jujitsu is not a replacement for like actual therapy or anything like that yeah but it could definitely do a strong thing to make your life 
better. You know what I mean? And I think that as coaches, that's how we should be thinking. The, the, the trick with that is is not providing cheap entertainment for people. I'm not, I don't want to think of ultimately someday my goal is to have my own academy, right? My goal is not to have an academy that is cheap entertainment for people. The goal is to have a place where people come and yes, they're going to they're gonna go through uncomfortable things, very uncomfortable things. They're going to suffer. But through that, they're going to find meaning, right? A personal meaning, right? Meaning that you can't, you can't put that into words. You can't describe that. It's different for everybody, right? Yeah. How they internalize the meaning that they get for training. Because, I mean, even here, the good thing about Singapore is it's so multicultural. It's so ethnically mm -hmm. diverse. The, the reasons that people choose to come in to train are myriad, mm -hmm. right? I mean, you'll get some people, you'll get the guys, and a lot of times they got this just pent up frustration for whatever reason maybe they feel weak maybe they're bullied maybe they're whatever maybe they f they're trying to get some kind of physical control over their life maybe they got uh, the pent-up energy for the girls it can often be security they don't feel safe they want to get stronger they want to stand up for themselves a little bit more like people derive meaning in especially in jujitsu in, in many different ways and they have many different obstacles for for sticking around with it yeah right and then i think as a coach too you have to sort of isolate People, and you really have to treat people on individual case by case basis. That's my that's my beef against like corporate gyms. Like if you're talking about like evolved structure and how they do things, mm -hmm. why as opposed to why I want a family gym because right. I can treat people on a case by case basis every day because they're only mm -hmm. seeing me, they're only dealing with me. And you know, some people need a little bit of get they need a little bit of positivity or a little gentle nudging to get in the right direction. Some people want to come in and just. Yeah. get the demons off their back and they want to go hard and you have to find the right moments to sort of cultivate them to push them in a right with some people if you're not giving them a hard enough workout they'll go somewhere else right other people if you push them too hard they'll break and they won't come back yeah and maybe then they could have had they could have found that meaning if they had stuck to it long enough but if you push them too far and they you meant to bend them and they break and then they right. maybe miss the miss the ball a little bit then that could be it for them right yeah which is what i say all the time with students who get a little too rough with certain you have to kind of read the person right like there's some people you can go hard with them and they're down right they just are always down and they want that they yeah. need that and if it's boring and they're not stimulated they just lose interest and other people if you push them too hard you'll break them and you kind of need that awareness yeah but there's definitely that element of, of, of fear and boredom and it's kind of true with with anything that you do right if you get locked up into your 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 shell and you're just repeating the same stuff over and over and over again. I think you're on that boredom side of the spectrum. But as soon as you take something new and you do something new, there's always that fear that comes in from getting outside of your comfort zone. Right. Yeah. Right. So I hadn't thought about it like that, but I think you're right. They are, they do sort of kind of exist on opposite ends of the spectrum because anytime that you do something new, there's always that little anxiety that you get. Yeah. That's why I always uh, at least tell like the other coach who just started working with me sometimes, and I always felt this too about some of the people that I used to train with. The coaches often forget what it's like to be a white belt mm -hmm. the first day they come into the gym, yeah. right? Especially like, you know, you get those like Brazilian coaches who are super hardcore and they've been a black belt already for 10 or 15 years and they've been good and, and like successful at it already for like 20 or 15 years. Very hard for them to go back only just based on the time, not because they're not trying or not because they're not empathetic, just because sure, yeah. it's hard to relate to how that was 20 years ago or whatever. You really got to keep that in mind because that you, you see new people just walk in, right? It's sometimes you don't realize. I can see them nervous, a little bit anxious sometimes, and I think it's really useful to remember that those people that are coming into your academy are maybe trying to slip away from the boredom into the fear domain a little bit. Yeah. But you kind of need to be like, hey, I get it. You know, don't worry. We're gonna take care of you. Build that 
nice environment so that they can tackle that fear with gradual exposure, right, which right. is how you deal with fear, not fucking dunking the head under the water, right? Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Yeah, you gotta, it's a case-by-case thing. Um, Were you nervous when you first uh, started jiu-jitsu? Like, do you remember the feeling that you thought, maybe maybe grappling, did you, re- you wrestled first, right? I wrestled right? first, Did yeah. you get, you remember that feeling of like seeing those dudes in there double-legging each other and shit and you're like, uh, or were you like, let's go? I, I honestly don't remember it because I was I was 13, so I was pretty pretty young. We're talking it's the same age I started. Yeah, I, I don't remember, to be honest. I'm sure I was. <laughs> yeah. I probably was, you know what I mean? Oh, and actually, no, that's a total lie because it's funny. So I did, okay, I really started wrestling when I was 13, but I also did a little bit when I was 10. And I fucking hated it. <laughs> That's why I quit. I, mean, I might have even been younger than 10. It might have been like 8 or 9. I don't recall. But I did one practice and I got my fucking ass kicked. And you're just like, fuck this. Yeah, I told my mom, I was like, I don't want to do this. <laughs> I was much too, I was a very shy kid. I was very reserved and I did not want to, I did not like, I'm even now I'm not a very confrontational person. Like I do not like confrontation. Like it's just not, I don't enjoy it. You know what I mean? Like I'm not trying to like, I'm, a lot of people know me say that that's not true because I'm very argumentative, but that's just. But that's not confrontational. Like. Right, it's different. And also, you're a New Yorker. New Yorkers right. have a different standard <laughs> for like talking back and forth and talking shit to each other, and yeah. it doesn't necessarily. It may sound aggressive as an onlooker. Yeah. The New Yorkers are like that, bro. They'll you know they'll like argue with each other and they'll but they're not like ready to fight each other. They're not. They don't want to have diff conflict with each other, but they're both willing to speak their thoughts. Yeah. Well, I get a lot of people that tell me that like I'm very argumentative and like my my girlfriend here she's Singaporean and oh, like oh yeah by well, that standard probably yeah we'll, we'll just be talking and she's like why are you so fucking mad i'm like i'm not i'm not mad like it's just how i talk like well, I singaporeans are the opposite they shy away from any sort of like disagreement even if it's okay. reasonable and you know you get a little bit of a loud voice that it's probably gonna be the same way right like we'll be like i will be as i would describe passionately making a case for something right she'll be like why are you yelling at me i'm like i'm not yelling at you i'm just like my voice is up here and i'm like yeah. big gestured and singaporeans tend to be very like monotone mm. and calculated and they will they will dance around and use language to like be political be po- not be political but just to they'll be very uh very specific with their language and it's very like de-escalating right in the way that they communicate right? probably better i guess but i don't know <laughs> maybe but good luck trying to get an opinion one way or the other about them yeah we need it and we are back sorry for the abrupt delay our cameras overheated because the conversations were too damn stimulating in here but now we're back and uh what the hell was that jake you just got a ghost photo taken of you bro and I gotta get my, my creepy ass picture off of. There you go. You better look in the manual with Jake. I like how, uh, if, if you check it out, you've got some sort of Super Saiyan thing going on on your face. No, dude. It, it looks like I'm Breathing blowing out fire. some smoke, dude. It looks like I'm blowing out smoke. Uh, anyway, man, so we, we were just talking about uh, uh, your friend. You say he's got an academy in India, and one of the things that you and I were talking about on the podcast. Um, a lot of countries, man, that, that you're in right now, dealing with COVID, are uh, the gyms in particular. They're, they're really struggling, right? Yeah. Most of them are like regular people, just enjoy martial arts, and very, very few academies are trying to get rich. Like this is not the thing to get rich off of, right? Yeah. You're trying to pay your bills and live a decent, decent quality of life, and COVID has destroyed a lot of these gyms because they've got to shut down, and especially when you're in. Con- I mean, like I heard New York was a disaster. Because they shut down all the gyms, like zero contact. California was like that. Some states 
just like like uh, Florida was like, well, no, fuck, Texas didn't give a fuck. But if you're in any of those other places, yeah, you know, they had to just shut down. And if that's their only source of income, a lot of these places have no choice but to just close down shop because if that's yeah. their only way of, of earning money and it's closed down and the government's not supporting it, there's really not much they can do. Fortunately here, as I was telling you earlier, we got like four months covered and all the rents were wavered during the, the circuit breaker here, right. which I'm sure you've heard talked about. Yeah. yeah. was like the full-on lockdown. Like, no one's going outside. Only food, like, running back and forth. Jesus. And all of that was, uh, all rents were waived, uh, property. And not a property was, but um, no, no business property. rents were waived. And then after that, we were able to receive four months. And I, I told you on the podcast, my gym had only been open, like, nine months when that happened right. we were just getting to the point where we were breaking even and that hit and during the time we didn't know what was going to happen we were all panicking like yeah. we thought for sure we'd have to shut down and, and luckily we got some government support here but a lot of the the gyms in the world are, are not getting that same support and you mentioned uh mm-hmm. your friend's academy in india yeah yeah in bangalore india my uh friend rohit he uh, speak right into that. Oh, oh, sorry man yeah bangalore india <laughs> uh my friend rohit he's the owner and head coach of institute of jiu-jitsu so, like, I met those guys last January when I was traveling in Asia teaching seminars. And, like, I tell people all the time, like, they are among the friendliest people I've ever met in my life. Like, such good, decent people. And they just, and also on top of them being just good people, um, I also just have, like, a lot of respect for them as jujitsu uh, practitioners, right? So, they're in a country which they don't really have as much money as some other places. So, when you compare, Singapore with India, Singapore is much wealthier. Oh yeah. But by contrast, in my opinion, the local community in India is much better. It's a much higher level of guy than the local guys in Singapore here. The best guys here in Singapore are at the same level. I think it's the best guys in India, but on like the average level is what I'm saying, right? The yeah. average level, they're better in India, I think. And I think that's really impressive, right? Because those guys are, they don't have the money to import foreign coaches in, so it's all homegrown stuff, right? Like Rohit opened up the gym after, dude, it's actually psychotic. <laughs> he was living in London doing his PhD in engineering, and he had one month of training, and then he moved, he was depressed, and he didn't, he didn't, he didn't like what he was doing uh, with engineering, and so he moved back to Bangalore and opened up a jiu-jitsu gym with one month of training from Hodger Gracie's Academy. And I think that's like, dude, he's just chasing his dreams, just trying to, have a, and he he got fucked by COVID, you know what I mean? Yeah. Really fucked by the government. COVID didn't shut down his gym, the government did. Uh, and it's just really sad, you know what I mean? And like, I was talking to him and like, they had to, they left their original location. They lost their original location. And now they have a new location and they might lose that location because India is going into another lockdown. And I want to do everything I can to help these guys. You know, at the end of the day, I'm only one person, so what can I do? My idea was start a GoFundMe or and or I want to try to teach a seminar for them. You know, Rohit's such a good dude that he's like, as soon as I pitched the idea to him, he was like, he's like, it's not fair to you. You gotta, you know, this is your job. You know, you gotta make you. I have to make money too, right? But at the end of the day, you know, it's a small thing for me to teach one seminar to help him out. You know what I mean? Because I think I could get them maybe like two, three months rent. <coughs> yeah, for sure. Because especially because you have to understand the rent is not, by our standards, is not a lot. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's very cheap. We're talking like 800 US dollars a month. You know, that's not, it's not, it's not inexplicable to think you could make that in a seminar here. Right? We could definitely make that, dude. We, yeah. we could definitely sort that out. I mean, I mean to, to your friend, like 
if he thinks it's it's some kind of handout, it's not. Yeah. It's like you, you want to be part of a community that helps each other out when mm. you're dealing with tough times, especially when you're dealing with situations that are completely beyond your control. Right. I mean, it's not about handing out. It's not about any of that stuff. It's just literally about helping someone that's in need. And you get those kind of guys. This is what I mean. You get the gyms that are most, most gyms are just regular people who enjoy training, mm. who enjoy the community and want to try to give back what they've received to other people. Yeah. And like, there's something super, there's something noble about that. There's something that's uh, pure about that. And we will as Stronghold help out any way we can. I mean, you sort out with your buddy what he thinks would be the best way uh, to move forward if he's interested in that. But I mean, I, I'm totally down. Yeah, I, I, I hope I can convince him to be okay with it because at the end of the day, like I want to help him out because I just, uh, like it just, it bothers me <laughs> and it, it wouldn't even be any stress on us like dude, yeah. all you would be doing is just coming over to the stronghold we'll all roll together yeah, yeah you know what i mean and then we just help each other out it doesn't just help them it helps us you can yeah. help train us you can teach us some of your stuff and you we can know. i can record it i can put that stuff on youtube i can use it for you know generate content so it's it's not even like it would be bad for me you know what i mean i don't think he sees it that way but yeah. Anyway, I'll talk to him more. It's tough to accept those things. I get that impulse. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. Where you're like, oh, I don't, you know, I don't want to do that because right. he probably feels like it's a bit of an imposition on you or something like that. Right. I, I, he didn't suggest that I did. <laughs> yeah. He would never suggest that. You know. Yeah. Like I, I put forth the idea, um, but uh, yeah, you know what I mean. And it's like, you know, it's like, uh, to to me, you know. It would be a legitimate fucking tragedy if their gym shut down. It's it's more than anything else. It's, it's out of respect for me appreciating and respecting what he built. You know, I visited his original academy, and to me, that's the ideal academy. It was the ideal academy where like it's just really good vibes, and everybody's training at a very high level, and they're getting really good together, and everybody's like super friendly. Like I hung out with those guys. And it was like, man, I wished I could have spent like months in India. I had so much fun with them. Like I really, I loved it so much. You know what I mean? And like I, as soon as I can, I want to go back to train with them more. Um, so really it's just selfish because I just want to train with them more. <laughs> yeah. Well, it would be much more of a tragedy, I would say, if like their gym were to close down. That's more, what I'm saying. More than yeah. it would be any imposition on you or to do a seminar or me to host one or anything like that. Like that's just yeah. That's just nothing. If we can all collectively rise, if they can stay open, if we can learn some of your techniques, if you put it out on the internet for other people wherever they are to start to try to get some of your concepts and drill some of your techniques, it's yeah. win win win. Right. You know what yeah. I mean? There's no downside to that. It's yeah, just I agree. Helping out one jujitsu community to the other. Yeah. So. so you you have something on them, right, Jake? Yeah. So that's the. Uh... So yes, yeah, so this is their this is their uh, Instagram page. I definitely recommend you guys go follow them. Uh, so like I said, they're they're in Bangalore, India. I think they are a very strong team relative to the region that they're in. Um, I was very impressed by their skill level. So if you if you scroll down, you'll see right there that that's Rohit. So this is their second gym, right? Because their original gym got shut down due to COVID. Um, if you scroll down a little bit, I think you'll see from my seminar there. Um, I'm actually not sure if they have any pictures of, uh, maybe, maybe not. So you keep going a little bit. So this is all the new gym. This is all the new this gym. This is the second one, eh? Yeah, yeah. This is a, you can tell because it's gray. Yeah. The original one was, was blue. Yep. See the There's blue? the original yep. one. Oh, there, there you are. There you are. Uh, so no, yeah, no pictures from the seminar, but I guess the, yeah, the, the, yeah, the promo picture for the seminar. Yeah. I mean, this is one of my favorite seminars I ever taught. It was like a packed house. It was like 50 people. 
Um, it was awesome, you know? Uh, so, yeah. I mean, I, I said the road as a joke. Just think of it as payment for, like, the uh, the Indian food you guys got. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah, man. And listen, the, my favorite part about this is is the community, right? The skill building is one thing, but it's, it, it's again, that, that communal suffering that communal thing that we all do when we decide to go to the gym together i mean yeah because i mean learning your own skills is one thing right if you imagine when people when you and me or anyone else goes in to train of course there's a sense of personal development that, that goes with that but you're literally offering your body to another person right. to practice those moves on you that's the in a nutshell what jujitsu is and if you just extend that outward it's saying, hey, man, like things are tough. Like this is going to be our personal development. And if we can help you do the same thing in any way, it's a win-win. It, yeah. just, it benefits everybody. It would be a, a real shame if something like that had to close down because of situations outside of their control, especially if somebody can do something about it. Yeah, I agree. But yeah. So I'm, we'll come on, bro. What's his name? <laughs> uh, Rohit. <laughs> Ro Rohit? Rohit Vasudeva. Rohit, let's go, bro. Let's spread the art, my man. Come on, let's do this thing. So, I want to learn Robert's shit anyway. It'll give him a reason to come to my gym and teach my students some stuff. There you go. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah. And it, anyway, so, um, what, uh, what else do you want to... <laughs> oh, uh, <laughs> I feel like we talked about that as much as we could. Okay, that's cool, man. Well, you, you tell him to let us know. and you, you let us know what that is. I'm, I'm totally down to help. I definitely right, right. think between... We, we could do just like a weekend thing and we could literally do it just during one of like my Nogi classes or both Nogi classes on the weekend. And then yeah. It would be no different than a typical training day. and You just come on by and it would be win-win for everybody. Did Are your gyms, uh, are they all back running up in New York? Yeah, pretty much. The U.S. What's the situation? Now it's better, right? Because everybody's getting vaccinated, and the U.S. has solved the COVID crisis. It's over. Yeah. We, we've we've stopped COVID completely. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we have fixed everything. Yeah. I mean, but it is on the upswing, though. Yeah. Right? So, so hundred million over people uh, with their first jab now. Yeah. Everyone over the age of sixteen in New York State's allowed to get vaccinated. So uh, you know, I, I hear a lot of Singaporeans shitting on New York and the U.S., but uh, it's not. You guys don't have that yet, right? Well, we we <laughs> the U.S. struggled in the beginning. We finish strong. There you go. You know what I mean? <laughs> when I was, I was joking around, I was joking around with my girlfriend. I was like, I showed her the list of COVID uh, uh, cases worldwide. I said, what, what's that number one right there? She goes, USA. It's like, that's because we're fucking USA. <laughs> 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 we're winners. <laughs> that's it. We fucking, the fastest path to the bottom and the quickest path of redemption. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Iconic American story. That is America in a nutshell. Yeah. Right? Quick sliding to the bottom and rising like a phoenix <laughs> to get to the top. Yeah. All right, man. Well, I mean, we could, we could wrap this thing here, man. That was cool. Uh, is there anything else you want to hit up? Uh, no, not really. We talked about, I think, a lot of interesting topics. So. Jake, do you, did you have one of... You've been quiet over there. Do you have anything you want to ask Robert, or is there anything else we should hit up before we uh, move on? Uh, well, unless you want to do a quick breakdown in the uh, today's UFC, we can touch it up pretty quick. Just we can take a quick, quick ten quick or fifteen to, so nice. to do this. <laughs> so can, I'll tell you guys the, the funny Chris Weidman story. Uh, did you guys want to hear that? Yeah, yes, totally. Okay. Dude, because <laughs> we got to say, rest up, Chris Weidman. That was brutal, man. Yeah, it was, you, you yeah. never want to see that. It's almost surreal because it's literally yeah. the same injury, Anderson Silva. I mean, it's that's so you crazy. If you wrote that in a story, people would say that it's too fictitious. Exactly. Like reality is stranger than fiction. Yeah, that need. I mean, if the, if I, I hope he fights again, 
Because it's the kind of injury. That, I mean, it was a bone injury. It's not like he that's a like, as out. compound as a compound fracture gets, though, man. That yeah. was brutal. But the bones will heal, though. Yeah, the right? bones will heal. Yeah, so I think he's probably fine. I mean, it looks Something very. Something to be said psychologically too, though, man. Like coming back from that, he's having a bad day right now. Like, yeah, no, no doubt. I mean, it's definitely not fun. But I'll, I'll tell you what. I, I still think a bone injury is probably better than like a knee ligament. Or it, it is. I yeah, was, it'll heal faster. I mean, Anderson right. came back. He he came back and. Didn't look quite himself, but he still won some fights. He, he definitely never looked the same again. But I, I don't know. Is that just old age or was that the, you know, the well, leg? Weidman's getting up there as well. What is he? He's 36 now? He's 36, I think, yeah. I mean, that, like that. just from a technical perspective, that was a little rough. Hey, I mean, he didn't set that low kick up at all. Yeah. You know, you throw the – this is one of the things. I just did a breakdown of, of that fight with a few other ones, and I think this is one of the reasons why you're seeing the emergence of that low calf kick mm-hmm. is because it takes out the check. Right, like if I aim for the lower part of your leg and you lift your your leg, yeah. you're just going to kick foot or you're going to kick ankle, okay. and that's going to be like the denser part of my shin hitting the even smaller part of your foot or leg. Most breaks, if you look at like the three UFC breaks, Anderson, Weidman, Corey Hill, those all happen from like the knee, checking uh, with the knee or checking with that upper part of the shin, the really dense bone. And generally, when you're kicking, you're kicking with that lower part of the shin. Right. And so one of the reasons why that low calf kick is so popular, and also the muscle wraps around really really far in toward the front of the shin on the lower part of the leg right like there's no muscle here on the right. top part but I can catch you literally on the just off the center line of my lower calf and it's still on the front of the leg right. it's so hard to check such a, a small area and even if you do you're dealing with similar bone density it's not like me kicking you with a small part of my shin and hitting the fucking meat of your knee or that upper shin yeah and that's like we're all breaks happen right. so I, I think this is why you're seeing that emergence of that low calf kick because in some sense it's it's much safer and it does so much damage well this is totally foreign to me I don't know <laughs> you didn't train enough Muay Thai to get leg kick bro not really you never no. eaten a hard low kick dude uh, I probably did at some point I mean you know how to take out a heel but do you know how to take out a calf dude come no, on no. <laughs> not a calf destruction expert uh, yeah now, see there's other ways that you can destroy the lower half of the body bro right, right. you know what I mean <laughs> yeah um, but what's your what's your Chris Weidman story? Oh, it's just a f- stupid, funny story. You never trained with him in in New York because I, I know he frequented. Uh, I never. And, yeah, I never rolled with him. Um, he stopped going. I think when I started going, uh, purely coincidence. I think. And he's also a Matt Serra <laughs> guy, right? Like more than well, a Danaher guy. Yeah, but the, the, those guys train they, like Matt Serra and the the Serra guys and the the DDS guys are kind of like one and the same. Yeah. I mean, a lot of those guys like Jason Round, Nick Ronan. Uh, well, Danaher and Sarah grew up together training, right? Like, yeah. They, I think well, Sarah was like his Sarah coach, was, Purple Belt when he started or something like that. Yeah, Sarah was definitely like above him in the belt rankings, right? So Sarah was like, I think, a generation before. Um, but like, those guys, I mean, there's, like, I've been to Sarah's plenty of times, and those guys have been to the Blue Basin plenty of times. Like, there's really, uh, they're really like one of the same team almost at like the, the higher competitive levels, I would say. Um, but like, anyway, so. The Weidman story. So I was I was at Penn Station, and this crazy homeless lady asked me for money, and you don't give money to homeless people in New York. If you do it once, you're going to have no... If you make a pattern of it, you just have no money after like a week. Yeah. Right? So you just don't do it, period. So this crazy homeless lady asked her for money, and usually they'll just leave you alone after you go away. But this one was following me and harassing me, and I happened to see Chris Weidman... 
And I went up to Chris White. It was right before his Anderson Silva fight. He was on the way to train with Danaher, actually. So he was the champion currently at that time? No, no, no. He was right before oh, his first, first fight. Yeah. yeah. So he was on his way to train with Danaher. And I went up to him. I was like, oh, shit. I was like, it's Chris Weidman. And he goes, oh, yeah, what's up? And I was like, oh, I'm just a fan here. I love watching you fight. And he goes, oh, he goes, what's going on with that homeless lady? <laughs> she, she, like, she, she, she followed, uh, followed me and then she walked away. And I was like, I just didn't give her money. She's acting fucking crazy. He goes, oh, okay, okay. Yeah, it's probably a good idea. <laughs> well, two New Yorkers know how to know yeah, what's yeah. up, how to deal with homeless people. And then I asked him what he was doing. He said he was going to train with, with Danaher. At the time, I, I didn't train with Danaher. I wasn't a student of his yet. Um, I was training at Vidor Shallon's uh, down the block. Yeah, yeah, I know that place. Yeah, and so then... Uh, that was it. <laughs> I said, I, I said, good luck. And I think I talked to him a little bit more. We talked a little bit about, like, about the fight. I think I even said, oh, you're probably going to have to take him down, right? Like, he's a really good striker. Ironically, then he knocked him, <laughs> him out with yeah. a left hook. But and no, then he, broke his shin in the next fight. Yeah. <sighs> that's tough to watch, man. Brutal, yeah. That is, sure. That's when you realize like fights are different, right? You see that. Right. Dude, I had this, this story. So we have this kid that trains at the gym. This Two kids, right? Mikhail and... Uh, uh, his younger brother, I don't know why his name's not, Caden, <laughs> Caden and Mikhail, and their dad comes in and does some boxing with me. Mm-hmm. And while we were teaching the kids class, the smaller kids class, the older brother, who's like eight or something, was sitting there watching on his on his phone with his dad while he was watching the fights. <laughs> and the thing about kids, right, is like, if they see stand-up striking and everything, they, they don't really know what's going on. They see the punches, but to them it's like a movie. They can't really internalize the pain and what's happening. So to them, it really seems no different than if they're watching a movie and some like an Avengers movie and people are fighting and punching each other. They're, they're not really thinking about the pain that happens. Yeah. But then I look over and I just see their eyes. Book and he's like, ah! and he makes this thing because even a small kid, when you see a fucking legs right. snap over and he falls back on it and it folds over. And I was like, oh, I don't know if he's recovering from that one, man. Because then... All of a sudden, the grisly context of, of fighting right. is apparent. It's not superficial. Like right. that's so graphic to see. And he was like, "No, no, no! Stop watching! Stop watching!" And I was like, "Oh, I don't know if he's gonna be able to unsee that one, bro." Like, yeah, I, I dodged a bullet today. That my kids normally watch it with me, but fortunately, they were in the swimming pool for that fight. I was like, "Oh, thank God!" Because <laughs> even a head kick in the like, if you think about like the rose finish or the the, I mean, the Usman one was pretty brutal too. But, you know, you, you drop them, you follow them up with strikes, they kind of get up or whatever, but there's something about that that grisly leg break. I mean, that is the hardest injury to watch, in my opinion, is you yeah. see that, that shin break. Definitely, definitely one of the grossest by far. It's very, like, I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm, I don't, I don't plan on rewatching it. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't either, but then people are already, God, people memeing it and shit already, and I'm just like, so uh, fucked up. I know, dude. I saw, like, all of them already, like, ten fucking memes of him. I'm just like, ugh. Well, it always happens that's our MMA fight, so it's like the Ben Askren, Jake Paul thing. That, oh, there yeah. were memes, like, five minutes. <laughs> Not even that long, actually. I know. Yeah. And he had, he had two horrible memes, too, like the Masvidal one and the Askren back to back. Like, after ten years of dominance... And then he's basically just going to be subjugated to meme status for like... It's awful. The man won two NCAA D1 titles. The Hodge it? Trophy. An Olympian. And that's Ten be- years undefeated. Multiple time. Multiple organization world champion. Yeah. And he's basically just two memes now. That's his, <laughs> that's his legacy now. I mean, what a fucking terrible <laughs> Knocked situation. out by a YouTuber. Knocked out by Street Jesus. Two fights in a row. <laughs> At least the Jorge Basadol. Jorge Basadol is like a legitimate fighter. Jake Paul, Jake Jake Paul is the one that beat him, right? Yeah. Okay, okay. Jake Paul, Jake Paul is like a fucking. The guy is a goof. I know. Like, He's a YouTuber. You gotta like. And the younger generation of like ten year olds that are making all those memes and shit, 
as that generation gets older, that's how Ben Askren is getting associated as. It's not as like the one champion, the Bellator champion, who beat Douglas Lima and Koreshkov and yeah. you know what I mean? Like, he didn't take a punch in, what was it, like four four fights in a row in one or something? Yeah. He didn't take a punch. They, just, like, see, the they just see that dad body and that overhand right from this YouTuber and they're just like, oh God. <laughs> so it's it, what we have to balance with Askren's legacy going forward is what weighs heavier? his reign as the one champion where 15 kajillion potential viewers a fight watched him or 15 kajillion <laughs> million quintillion mammillion that, that is one area where we universally shit on one area. right right <laughs> 12 kajillion people are currently watching this broadcast from 400 countries oh, really are we are we really going there? <laughs> Unborn children in the womb. <laughs> yeah, we include fetuses and chromosomes as one person. <laughs> right, right. But like, anyway, so that or the Jake Paul. I think the Jake Paul thing, unfortunately, like I really enjoy. When I think of Ben Askren, I think of back when I was a kid watching his wrestling matches in college. Funky Ben, he had a yeah. weird style too. He did shit yeah. you weren't supposed to do. That's what made him so interesting to watch, right? And he was, he was like entertaining in wrestling, you know. And it's like, but it's a, uh, yeah, man. It honestly, legitimately breaks my heart, uh, you know, because like it broke the collective heart of the entire martial arts community. Yeah, like, <laughs> it only, only the like the weebs and shit on YouTube were the ones that were like, yes. Only yeah. the little, the nerds and the 10-year-olds who know Jake Paul from whatever. And Jorge Masvidal. And my, yeah. <laughs> I think Masvidal was just sitting there drinking his Corona love and life, you know what I mean? Yeah. But anyway, you wanted to talk about the fights from the other night, right? Did you uh, catch any of the other You said you watched the... I, I watched all the main... Did event. anything stand out to you? Like, was there anything that you found interesting or... Yeah, so so one is, um, I, I felt very happy that I think now Usman is starting to assert himself as a champion worthy of respect. There's a weird thing with champions sometimes in the UFC, especially the welterweight division I've noticed. Like, I feel like every welterweight champion has been living in the shadow of George St. Pierre, and they have been... There seems to be, like, less respect for them, almost. Like, Tyron Woodley got, like... Tyron Woodley sometimes was his own enemy where he would, like, antagonize fans and stuff. And also his style was... was oh, yeah. Which was, I think, Usman's original criticism, too. Right. But, but coming off of Colby and then Gilbert and then Masvidal... Right. He's fucking people up now. Yeah. Like, the, the thing is, to me, is, like, look, at the end of the day, if you're winning in dominant fashion, I'm not going to complain about it. But I understand from the average fan's perspective, they But won. look how they treated Mighty Mouse for years. Right. He never had any pay-per-view he was like the most pristine example of mma right beautiful technique quick like a snake and really he was took damage and he dominant was yeah it was exciting he wasn't even doing like lay and pray you know he was legitimately exciting so yeah but anyway i mean demetrius johnson's actually one of my favorites of all time he has to be he yeah. has to be like he should be like everyone everyone one of their fa- did you see that knock knock out of andre Moraes? yeah that actually, that so, someone should have told him about being needing the face though on the one card man <laughs> yeah that was bad that listen actually- one deserves its criticisms but they also deserve their props and like that's my wife she's home oh, okay and uh <laughs> like listen eddie alvarez came over like when he was still ranked top five in the world got flatlined by nastukin and then DJ comes over after only one split decision loss in, what, 15 fights? Right, right. He still would have been globally ranked probably number one. Maybe Figueredo, maybe Cejudo, but he left the division. Yeah. And then just got that knee to the face when he's coming up on that single. I, was, I did a thing on that, too. Like, 
if you can frame with your upper body and you can strike with your lower body, the striking on the ground becomes totally different from that bottom position. Right, right. right. You're coming up on a single leg. Like in the UFC, I can't frame you and keep you down and punch you. But if I can frame you with my upper body and strike you with my lower body, whether it's a soccer kick or a knee or something like that, it is a game changer. Yeah. Especially like the guard too. Yeah. Like uh, my buddy Major knocked out one of the Evolve instructors who I was training with under the, at the time, this is before I knew Major, and it was just one of those things like he kind of just lightly passed through the guard by and before and when Bruno was trying to, Bruno Pucci was, it's his Angel Louise husband, uh, okay. and when uh, he was trying to re-guard, he just stepped over his legs and boom, punted him right in the head. With soccer kick. Yeah. Wow, nice. So I mean, when you can create distance with your upper body frames when the person's below you and strike with your lower body, whoo! That's a game changer, dude. Gonna have to YouTube that one. I still want to see that. Uh, pull, pull that up. <laughs> what, what He's the most brutal soccer kick I've ever seen. I'm saying that. He's sickening. Oh my God. Major's a longtime friend. He's been on the podcast several times. And uh, I'll plug Major. Can you pull that up, Jake? Uh, yeah, while, we're while we're talking about that. I've met, I've met Major twice. So I trained at Team Highlight Reel, which I know doesn't exist anymore now. It's yeah. Matrix Jiu Jitsu. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I haven't been there, but I've seen pictures of the inside. To me, it looks way nicer than the Highlight Reel location. Mm. Would you agree or no? I haven't been there yet. Okay. Uh, when he, I spoke to him last in person is when he was on the podcast. Like It was the week he opened the gym up. Uh, how so, long have they been open? Is it brand new? Yeah, a couple months, maybe oh, max. Okay. They only yeah, just opened up. They had like closed door sessions for a little bit there. Uh, and then they only opened up to the general public yeah, a couple months ago. Right. But we have a lot of students that train in both places, like uh, Tiffany Teo, I don't know if you know her. I know her, She yeah, fights yeah. in one, she comes and trains with us, yeah. and she's I, a student with She's, very she's awesome, yeah, she's awesome. Yeah. She comes in and she's uh, trains with Charmaine, and trains with us, and uh, yeah, dude, this soccer kick is brutal. And then, but yeah, man, it does, this is another thing that's interesting about like, how the rules can manipulate the outcomes, mm -hmm. right? Because when you can strike with your lower body, man, that bottom position turtle, turtle is totally different if I can knee your head. Right. Right. Because if, if it's UFC rules, I have to like push down your head or I have to frame you and all I can do are these little punches. But when I can frame with both and I have the leverage of firing a knee from distance to the top or the side of your head, mm -hmm. it makes being on the bottom so much more dangerous. Yeah. Oh yeah. There we go. We got it. So make it make it full screen if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah it's because it's, it's, uh, it's a little small. Yes, yeah, so that's major when he was about thirty kilos lighter. <laughs> oh, he's, he's heavier he's a, now. He's right. a thick boy now. Jeez, this is bantamweight, dude. Oh wow, major is like quite a bit bigger now. Yeah, but so I cornered him for his next fight and won after this. So watch this. Watch him throw the legs by. Boom! He didn't even throw the legs by. He just literally stepped in like one leg in the middle. Go back one more time. <laughs> I mean, never get tired of seeing this. It's so brutal. It's so clean, jeez. Yeah. And he didn't even use. I mean, he dropped him with the hook. Yeah. But then just stepped in and brought that foot right around the leg. <laughs> Boom! Oh, wow, that's, man. that's just good quality fun. Stay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's something the whole family can enjoy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> What's up? Oh, I got this. Yeah, man, that's brutal. Anyway, uh, oh, yeah, so the last thing, let's, let's finish on that Usman bit. So you were yeah. saying you're, you're glad he finally got the well, yeah, respect so he deserved. It was a super clean punch. It's just, I don't know, I, it's just kind of like, I don't really give a shit that much, but it's kind of nice for me to see like him getting more respect now. Uh, do you like those watching those wrestlers? Because you say you're a wrestling fan, right? Yeah. So do you, do you follow those guys like from when they were wrestling in the NCAAs to when they're like 
fighting through the ranks and then becoming UFC champion. I mean, it's such yeah. a common theme. I love watching grapplers have success. You know, at the end of the day, a wrestler's a grappler. You know, so those guys are having success in MMA. I enjoy watching it. You know, you're, you're wearing a Habib shirt. Dude, Habib I love Habib. Is, yeah, dude, Come I on, love man. He's my favorite fighter. Yeah, dude, I love Habib. I, I think you can study a lot of his game for pure grappling. You know what I mean? It's oh, similar, for sure. Yeah, similar. He's tri- mounted triangling people, armbarring people. His guard is nasty. Yeah. He's on top a lot, but if you watch his early fights, Dude, his guard is nasty. Yeah, yeah, I've seen a lot of a lot of the early ones. Um, but anyway, so yeah, I just so it's nice to see. You know, I I, I enjoyed it. Um, the other one, the Rosanami Yunus one, that one sort of bummed me out a little bit because I like Zhang. Um, yeah, she's my wife's favorite fighter. Yeah, and got head kicked like that was pretty rough. I, and Rose made some like kind of like offensive comments before the fight about was, the communism and all yeah, that. Yeah, it's so. like she's like, come on, man, like yeah. it's the. the, the you, well, you think like Zhang Wei Li, like she's uh, has anything to do with what the CCP does, dude? Exactly. Shut, shut the fuck up. Exactly. Like, and just, I, anybody can say what they want, but in that kind of context, you kind of got to stay in your lane a little bit because you don't know what those people are going. Right. Through. Exactly. It just strikes me as very douchey, right? Like yeah. you're gonna like comment on this and 100. percent Like you, she, I think she regretted it though. She made that comment at the oh. end of at the end of the fight. Did you see the post fight? No, no. She kind of brought it up and was like, oh, you know, I didn't mean to offend anybody. But I want everybody to be treated. Equally, you know, she kind of. I think she knows that she should have. It's easy she stuck to, her foot in her mouth. It's easy to say that after you've won. You yeah, know what I mean? yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, exactly. Yeah, when you when you've won in such dominating fashion. Because if Jean Wei won, she's gonna be like, "Come in, this up." I was talking shit. Uh, but like, yeah. So like, I don't know. Like, I was definitely rooting for Zhang. Uh, whatever when she won, I, I thought that was really cool. Wei Zhang won the the belt that is right. Yeah, that was like cool to see. The fight with Ioana was just ridiculous. Yeah, it was awesome. Oh man, one of the best fights I ever seen. Yeah, but, but that, but that, but Rose's technique, man, she's like a snake, dude. Her footwork, the way she moves her head, the punches are just laser beam straight. And that head kick she landed, like to land a head kick, right? I mean, that thing slipped right in the window. So okay. the foot positioning, I'm a nerd about all of it, right? I've spent. Uh, that's why I always say, like, I'm an MMA black belt. I'm not like a jiu-jitsu black belt because mm-hmm. I spend thousands of hours and wrestling was my first thing just doing boxing and muay thai right i love everything equally i'm mma to the core right Right, right, that's where all my and just the foot position and the way that she was able to sneak that head kick between the glove because the hand was up the angle has to be perfect for the foot just to come in and boom hit just that right spot it's amazing yeah okay yeah so from my limited dumb striking perspective (laughs) i didn't catch that but it's definitely like clearly fine technique so yeah um, I can't believe you never were able to geek out about striking. Not it's a, so. I, just, it, I mean, you can get down to the nuclear level just like jujitsu, right? It's just, it's just different, right? Yeah. yeah I mean, at the end of the day, like, I think that, like, you know, I understand anyone who's super into something. I understand being into that. I'm just not into that. Yeah, yeah. We each have yeah. our own predispositions. Yeah, for yeah. The Things that we find fascinating and interesting. And, right. Yeah. And even like martial arts, right? You'll meet the people that are specialists, and mm-hmm. they don't want to go do boxing and martial because they're so deeply fascinated by by this one element of it or this yeah. one style of martial arts or whatever the case may be. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, what are they doing? That was pretty much all the fights. Nothing else really happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we pretty much hit it. We can wrap it up, man. Yeah. We're getting toasty in here. Two hours, two hours deep. This is one of the longer ones we've done. Oh, okay. Robert, it's been a pleasure, my man. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it for sure. Let's do it again, bro. <laughs> I can sit here and like geek out on martial arts and leg locks and, and all this stuff for ages, man. I, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy it. So I want to thank you for uh, joining us. Let us know 
if uh, if this thing with your boy works out, we yeah, have yeah. to sort that out. I, I have a feeling it will. I'm gonna talk to him. Yeah, talk him down, dude. He, come on, let's yeah. be reasonable here. Like, you need help, <laughs> man. We want to help you out. I need to learn Robert's shit. Yeah. So let's go, man. Rohit, Rohit, yes. Rohit, yeah. See, I got it. All right. And uh, but sh- shout out your like social media and shit, dude. Because if you're a jujitsu player and you're not following, especially if you're a nogi guy and you're not following Robert's Instagram, you're fucking up because I'm saving all that shit <laughs> so that I can steal from the pot. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, it's, so it's, it's Robert D-E-G-L-E-B-J-J. It's pronounced Deagle, so Robert D-E-G-L-E-B-J-J. I'm on Instagram, uh, YouTube, longer form content is available there. And I have instructionals on my site, robertdeaglebjjonline.com, uh, just one word. Uh, it's also, the link is in my bio on Instagram. It's a, that makes it easier. So yeah, thanks for the plug. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely, dude. I mean, it's because I thoroughly enjoy your content. So I think other people will as well. All right, everybody. This is the Stronghold Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Have a good day.